Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. Shall we pod? I think we should. I'm putting the I'm putting that back in the pod anyway. Just I'm putting one in the pod and one in the show, just because there's loads of stuff anyway. Should leave that in because it makes people realise how much preparation goes into the the show. You're going. I'm leaving that one in. I'm leaving that one out. I'm doing oh, that. Well, have we started? Well, yeah, because Robin said we're rolling before, oh, right. okay. and he didn't mean in the lone groover sense that unfortunately you didn't. I'm, what I'm trying to work horrible out, about last week. A lot of the times I'm trying to work out at which stage to to read out which email because there's lots of stuff which is specifically podcast related. I know people don't realise the, the level of broadcasting skill that goes into you choosing at which point to read out something that a listener has written. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different piles of paper in front of me. Can I just tell you that incidentally, it's like Rick Wakeman on keyboard. Okay, like um, the other uh, people in the studio with you. I was 10 paces ahead of your confession on uh, Wednesday Which one about it? the velvety curtain. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> in a way, what you could have done is just stopped and gone, and now fill the rest in fill yourself. Fill the rest yourself. Um, there is a, if you're wondering what Mark's talking about, there is a Confessions podcast from Radio 2 which will is there? fill in the gap. Where can people get that, Simon? Radio 2 website. And, and, and can they now get all of our uh, back issue? Pro- there was a, there was a brief hiatus when suddenly all podcasts. From, it was like a kind of Stalinist purge, wasn't there? That all podcasts from before a certain date disappeared. But are they back now? It was, they are. They're going back to twenty twelve. Which getting, but they are putting. No, okay. Twenty twelve is as good as we can manage, is it? But yeah, but they are. It is going, but it's not. It, it, they, they are trying to. It's a. It's a glitch. It's a it's glitch. A bit like lost episodes of Doctor Who. They'll find an episode of this show which is being used to prop up. Uh, a, I don't know a shed somewhere in Wessex. Okay, you do know that everything is digital now, so it's not possible to prop anything up on it at all because it only exists in virtual form. It's and not this... like there's not tapes anymore. <laughs> I think there might be. A ta- I think we used to give them out on reel to reel tape, didn't we? I, would, I, I used to make programmes on reel-to-reel tape, as, as indeed you did, and, I, and I've still got a, a loft full of reel-to-reel tapes of old cling films. I quite like uh, a Rick Wakeman-style wittertainment cape with which to broadcast. With. <laughs> with which to broadcast with. Why do you want a cape? Well, I just think it would be quite... I think it would suit the show if I could... Because I interviewed Martin Fry this week as well. Gold Lame. I heard. Doing, I, heard. No, I don't think Gold Lame is me, but I think a Rick Wakeman-style Lame cape... Yeah. Would work. And I was very behind it. I was very impressed by Martin Fry's. You're not getting a word in edgewise until I finish this answer. He was, Answers. It was. <laughs> it he wasn't stopping. It wasn't just me hearing that, was it? No, no, no. He, he was going to say this, and it was going to take this long, and that was absolutely fine. Do you want a feel good story? Yeah, go on. Okay. But more feel good than Martin Fry and ABC being back together again. Even more. Well, he is ABC, he, isn't he? Basically, he? He's back together again he is with the himself, Bishop of Canterbury. So this is from uh, JT in Chicago. Okay. Good doctors. Last Friday, I emphasise, because I know you worry about these things, this is a feel-good email. Yeah, it's just nice to be sort of forewarned. Okay. Last Friday, May the 13th, Friday the 13th, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was pulling into the parking lot at my local park ready to have a nice five-mile run whilst listening to the BBC flagship film show. Unfortunately, I found the latest transfer to my non-fruit-based MP3 player had failed, and instead the previous episode was playing the epic 
Tom Hiddleston episode okay. started to play. Could be worse. Mm-hmm. That was a good episode. Well, since it was an outstanding interview and included I Saw the Light, I decided a second lesson was in order. And that's the last thing I remembered for 24 hours. Well, apparently, shortly after exiting my car and starting my run, I collapsed the victim of a heart attack. So this is a feel-good story? Yeah. It's like a feel-good story that's in a movie. Okay, so this is this is in the first half of the film, so you know everything's going to be okay. Okay, it's only got a PG certificate. Right. So he got out of the car, put on put 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 on his generic fruit based device. Yes. Hit go. Realized it was Tom Hiddleston, and and then and dropped dropped. to the floor. It's not Tom's. We're not saying it's Tom's fault or yours. (laughs) He just did. How do you have a heart attack in the park? You just do, and that's what happened. Fortunately, says JT. And he doesn't remember anything, so he's like a proper out-cold heart attack. The Lincolnwood Police and Fire Departments are based in that park, so having dropped at their front door, these heroes responded quickly, got my heart going again, and moved me quickly to St Francis Hospital in Evanston. Oh, my word. Where the top ER staff and wonderful ICU folks continued the process of bringing me back to the Church of Wittertainment and, indeed, to life itself. Praise the Lord, I heard the Kermode Hiddleston version of I Saw the Light. So he's really joining in. This is great. So this time, it wasn't a Commodian rant or a mayor wasp. It was the hard work of many true hero first responders and medical workers and my simple hope to hear that interview and song again, as well as the hope to rejoin all my dear family and friends. Thanks to them all. To paraphrase the late, great Warren Zevon, enjoy every podcast. Uh, do you get So that's a reference to uh, when he was told... Warren Zevon, this is. Mm. He had cancer. He said, well, enjoy every sandwich. And that was the name of, there was like a tribute album that was done to him. So enjoy every podcast. Thank you, doctors, for another life-saving podcast. So it's on JT in Chicago, born 1956, born again, 2016. Wow. How about that? Wow. We, can we, are we allowed contractually to play I Saw the Light again? We must be, must we? At the end, at the, at the end of the show. Yeah, okay, it was an interview fine. thing, wasn't it? It's fine. It was so Tom, Tom did it for, you know. So what we'll do at the end... Yeah. Uh, for JT in Chicago and everybody else, but I would, you know, and obviously it's perfectly. Just enjoy it, and just so it's. We're not saying go right. see the light. We're just saying enjoy. Go toward the light. You say go see the light. I don't know. <laughs> we'll play it again for JT. Don't go toward the light. Is that Poltergeist? Well, it's yeah, it's Poltergeist, and then every other movie ever afterwards in which people are told to not go towards the light, and then then there's that weird bit when she suddenly says go. Go toward the light, and they go. But you said, "Don't go toward the light." So, in general, if you mm. were faced with, say, you're walking through the woods, and then you see a light coming through some trees, would you instinctively walk? Would you go to the light, or would you go, "I'm suspicious of the light, and I'm going to go another way"? Well, according to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, there are right. t- there are two. There's a uh, two what the two lights, and you have to go to the one that's further away, and it's to do with okay, you know, they knew about this stuff. The Tibetans. What if, only, what if there's only one? Well, then, then you're then you've then you've just had. By a bit, definition, that's a too close. By de- if you if you just see one light, then if you're following the Tibetan Book of the Dead, mm-hmm. you should keep looking because there'll be another one. But I don't want to be. I don't want to be registered you know, the, the, the in the. Amazing Tibetan thing book. about it is, very few people have come back and complained. Okay, fair enough. That's true. Here's another interesting. There is a very good story, incidentally, about. Sorry, I'm going to do this. There's a very good story about William Friedkin, uh, the director who incident. Bill. Bill, Billy, yeah, Billy's blatty. Billy is, is freaking. Um, who was driving to work uh, and had a heart attack whilst he was driving to work, being freaking, continued driving to work and into the into the studio, you know, and then collapsed. 
and was taken to the hospital and, you know, and seen to by absolutely brilliant medics and had a kind of, you know, and then came back and went, you know, came back to being fighting fit. And uh, and was asked, you know, did you have any kind of spiritual, you know, thing experience or the rest of it? You went, nope. And that was that was the end of that. Were they medics that had been summoned there by their phones because they'd been in the movies? <laughs> yes, all through, <laughs> all the way through. You know, the 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 what's he called? The Cinerama drum was emptying out of people running. Now is is uh, Catherine Pearson? Um, I'm writing. To you, having recently caught up on a six-week backlog of your podcast. There you go. So we're talking about the backlog again. For which I only have my university course to blame. I'm studying film and literature at the University of Warwick, no finer, and have been spending recent weeks putting together an essay with a psychoanalytic reading of The Big Lebowski. As you know, The Little Lebowski has a couple of rather bizarre dreams in the film. I decided for my last essay, <clears throat> last essay of the year... I would attempt to apply Freud's dream theory to them. Anyway, with essay out of the way, I've got and myself... Freud's dream theory were a band in the 80s, surely. Almost certainly. Where were they from? I they were from Hull, Australia, I think. I think. Oh, fun. Anyway, with essay out of the way, I've now got myself up to speed with the podcast and I wanted to chime in with a couple of listeners' emails uh, and also thank you for uh, thank the creators of the Wit app, which I gather you both had hands-on involvement in putting <laughs> and indeed profit from that's, financially on a weekly basis. on a weekly basis. <laughs> I certainly I love it when the checks come in. How much was yours recently? <laughs> well, it was in uh, it was in three figures. Really, the figures were pennies, but it was three of them. Uh, a listener wrote in a few weeks ago asking your good selves to name films featuring dogs where the dog's name is not in the title and where the value of having an animal companion isn't the main focus of the film. Mm-hmm. Lots of examples came in. I wanted to add the Italian film Umberto D to the mix, okay. a neo-realist film that I had studied earlier th- this year whose study centres on the elderly and down-on-his-luck Umberto D, who is the owner of a little dog, Fliege. Did you that again? A little dog what? Fliege. <laughs> it's not very Italian, though, is it? <laughs> A dog who is both a pain and a blessing. I also recall a listener talking about Eye in the Sky and saying, has there ever been so much nail-biting over a loaf of bread? Do you remember that review? Comment? Yes, yes, Discussion? absolutely, yes, exactly. Which yeah. I just wanted to draw your attention to Les Miserables, a novel, stage show and film that wouldn't have taken off in quite the same way had Jean Valjean decided to to not decided not to steal that loaf of bread. We also wouldn't have had to listen to Russell Crowe sing either. Then Catherine finishes with this, P.S., mm-hmm. Do I put hello to Jason Isaacs in my exam in the hope of bonus marks? Yes. But what if it appears... Now, this is, I just thought that... Because there's so many examinations being done. We have to be careful about this advice. What about GCSE takers? Well, as What a, about A-level? What about degree level? What? About, what? I, think, we I think hello to Jason Isaacs works at any level. You think? I think it says... What if it appears to be yeah. like graffiti? You know? What do you mean, like, what, you mean you've accidentally graffitied your paper? Yeah. Have I ever told you the brilliant story about my advanced maths? Uh, O-level as it was then. Uh, I'm sure you have. Well, shall I tell it to you again? Because you can't remember it. So <laughs> yes. when it, it's a, I can't remember what you said last week. Uh, no, OK, fine. No, I can't remember what I said yesterday. Um, uh, hi, I'm Mark Hayding. Uh, in, uh, oh, in, hi, Mark. in my school, you could, if it, I did um, maths O-level uh, uh, a year early... 
to get it out of the way because you were able to at that point. It was this sort mm-hmm. of thing. But if you did that, you then had to do advanced maths. You weren't allowed to just spend the time doing stuff that you actually knew about. You had to do advanced maths because I didn't know advanced maths from a hole in the ground. I mean, by the end of lesson one, I was completely lost. I just it was somebody writing doodles on a blackboard. I had no knowledge of it, no interest. Didn't want asked to be let, let off, but wasn't allowed to. So apparently, one of the things in advanced maths is: Do you know what expanding an equation is? Is it where you take an equation and you expand it? Yes, it is exactly that. But do you know how you... It's like... Multiply it out. Oh, it's fine. Is that what it's called? I don't know. Is that what you do? It just sounded about right. Yeah, you do. It's, it's like there's a there's a asking me about maths is not very no positive. no. But but you've done that. The you know you know your science stuff. Okay, so when you expand an equation, it's like there is an equation and you somehow unpick it. You somehow make it into a into a. I okay, it's a thing, right? Right. Question one of my advanced maths uh, uh, O level, which I knew I knew nothing about and just wanted to go home, was a thing, and then it said expand this equation. So with all the stuff that I was allowed to have on the thing, you know, I stuck all the pieces of exam paper together, wrote the equation out really big and handed it in. I got a U, but it was funny. <laughs> there you go. So there's a moral there, and the moral is don't do that. No, I, did, I was never only ever going to get a U. I mean, I, honestly, I didn't understand any of what the paper said. I got like one art level. It did nothing, nothing for me. Working for the rat race, you know, you're wasting your time. They, they're not actually words of encouragement. No, I say also not true. Uh, exactly. You have to work for the rat race. That's the way you yeah, get But also having an art level probably did help Terry Hall. Yeah. Plus being... Uh, being great, Terry Hall. Being Terry Hall. Yeah, but that's the thing. I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't a qualification. When he went to join the specials, they didn't say, have you got an art O level? But he probably did learn something in the course of having it that enabled him to be Terry Hall. And, now, and yes. he ended up singing with Banana Rama. So frankly, he didn't do too badly. Uh, Dear Hercules and Bella, says Ben Reeves. I've got time for this. Yes, I think so. I was very excited to hear on last week's show the letter from your Newcastle United fan who'd written in to say that he'd heard our Hello to Jason Isaacs mention at Aston Villa. I am, or rather was, the screens director at Villa Park. And last Saturday, uh, last Saturday's match, my and my colleagues' final game there due to the relegation of the team and the resulting financial cutbacks. So because of this, I decided to get all the messages on the screen that I could. Here is a photograph. <laughs> Let me see. Uh, so here is a photograph of this, of uh, saying hello to all my fantastic. friends. I put up a 40th birthday message for workmates who are still in their 30s. And, of course, hello to Jason Isaacs, which I've been itching to put up for years. So this was up on the up on, on the Aston Villa screen. Their last, uh, for their last match in the Premiership. Brilliant. Whereas I'm a long-standing chorister at the Church of Wittertainment, our beloved stadium announcer is more of a presenter of drive time, so didn't really understand the in-joke. But as the audio clip attached from my pre-fade listen conveys, he added a rhetorical question. So, let's go live to Aston Villa. And Jason Isaacs, what's up and hello? Wow, do people still say that? Wow. <laughs> what, I love, what I love about that is he's got it completely wrong. He's saying hello to Jason Isaacs, not realising why, and he's saying what's up. It's not, you don't pronounce the T. There isn't a T in it. It's not like that. No. And then I just love the complete silence. Can we hear that again? It's the total silence once he said it as nobody laughs or registers. Here we go. And Jason Isaacs, what's up and hello? No. Wow, do people still say that? Wow. It's very part. It's excellent, isn't it? It's very good. <laughs> very good. OK, that's, uh, have we got time for this? Yeah, go on. Very quickly, Corey, Pe- uh, Corey Peacock in Wyoming. Uh, I'm writing to discuss my induction into the newly created cardio corner of your church. Like many listeners, I frequently listen to your podcast whilst engaging in long cardio sessions at the gym. Two weeks ago, whilst listening to your podcast on my generic fruit-based 
two no, moments of entertainment-related embarrassment. The first was when Mark exclaimed early in the show, "I will not say hello to Kim Jong Un." <laughs> I mean, who'd have thought you, you have ever, to, you have ever to draw the line? That's right. You have to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> My resulting wry chuckle was not appreciated by the woman on the elliptical next to me, who shot me a look of confused disgust and ended her workout prematurely. The second was later in the show when Mark said that Sissy Spacek did her own coal mining in Coal Miner's Daughter. <laughs> I reacted to this joke with what I can only hope was a charming smile. A smile that, incidentally, was made in the general direction of a rather good-looking gentleman walking toward me. Excellent. He noticed the smile and courteously returned one of his own, but sadly, this did not lead to the wittertainment-related relationship that I was so hoping for. Oh. On a very unrelated note, this last weekend... I was required to bring my cat along for me for a weekend road trip. On the way to my destination, my feline friend was very anxious, spent the car ride meowing loudly and vomiting multiple times. <laughs> That's what they did. On the return journey, I decided to put on your podcast. To my surprise and appreciation, your dulcet tones calmed the cat and we were able to arrive home without incident. Really? We stopped cats vomiting. How about that? What a... What a skill that is. I used to have a Manx cat that I got... You haven't got time for this story? No, be really quick. We have. I got a Manx cat that I got from the Manx cat rescue in the Isle of Man. I had to bring him across on the ferry, which is four hours. And literally, at the very beginning of the journey, cat started doing the hyperventilating and vomiting thing. The only way I could stop him was by holding the cage up to my head and singing the Ellen Van into him for four hours. I wish I'd been with you at that time. That would have been very good. Anyway, enough with the anecdotes. Here comes the show. Mark, you're on. Thank you. Well, we're on. Both of us. Are we ready to go? The same. I've been ready since Nixon resigned. No, no, no. That's the that's wrong thing. Let's, know, know, okay, the line goes I like just this. thought you, I thought you were going to fill, fill it in. No, here, here's how it goes. Mark, are you happy? I haven't been happy since Nixon resigned. There you go. That's that. That's that. That's the full anecdote. Not particularly politically impartial. Not really an anecdote. I think it's fine. You know, I don't think it's considered impartial to make jokes about Nixon. No. Okay. Fair enough. Um, uh, very excited because it's Tom Hanks Day today, and uh, there's a new Hanks movie around. So we'll be talking to our friend Tom just after two thirty. He does really put out an amazing amount of material because he was on just a few months ago with Bridge of Spies with his, mm. his mate Stephen. Yes. And here he is back again. But Stephen's had a whole new movie since then. That's true. We're on first name terms with all of these tippity-top filmmakers, mate. Tom Taylor says, Last Sunday I found myself uh, in a charity race in Oxford in the May sunshine with a rudimentary attempt at eyewitter, not affiliated to your show or the BBC in any way, strapped to my back. A large piece of paper with Hello to Jason Isaacs was written across it. Hello, Jason, by the way. Knowing that my current racing standard is not quite up there with the likes of Mo Farah, I thought that having the sign on my back as people pass me would be a good idea and that hopefully it would give some runners a well-needed smile. Mm. I don't know if you've ever gone and watched a marathon, but if people have their names written on their vests, yeah. then you go, come on, John. Anyway, Tom <laughs> is going for a marathon and he's got this thing yeah. on his chest saying hello to Jason. I was not disappointed. After 5K, I had lost count of the Hello to Jason shouts, Fairport Convention shouts, pats on the back, smiles, nods of appreciation and general goodwill. One encounter stood out. As I was passing yet another bemused tourist in the centre of the city who could not understand why their route to the walking tour had been interrupted by a group of sweaty runners, a lady in the race with me put her arms around my shoulder and said, thank you for the sign. It was just what I needed and has lifted my spirits. She then proceeded to speed up and leave me in her <laughs> Of dust. course. This encounter really did make my day and I was delighted to know that such a simple message can bring a smile to so many people. Jason Isaacs can actually heal you and make you he better. Can. 
Uh, if you can read this out, could you say hi to my beautiful wife, Jo, who finished the race with me? But here's the dilemma, right, which we finish with. When someone shouts hello to Jason Isaacs, to you... To, to us? What, yeah, well, just, well, to Tom, because he was doing oh, to, the race. to one. What is the uh, approved wittertainment response? Is it a simple hello back? Who knows, as now the race is over, I'll have a long break. But if someone shouts hello to Jason Isaacs, I just say... Thanks for listening. But obviously in Tom's case, yes. that would appear presumptuous as he's not on the show. Yes. I mean, I usually say, I'll pass it on. Uh, thank you, Tom, for the email. Anyway, uh, Liam from Neuring, County Down. Just a quick note to explain how you two disc jockeys have completely spoilt my cinema viewing experience. What, you two disc jockeys? People that, but disc jockeys that play you too? I can understand that. No, us two disc jockeys. Oh, I see. Fine. In days gone by, I used to sit in relative comfort enjoying a film. Maybe in 3D, as I never noticed it was darker until you mentioned it, pleasantly ignoring my surrounding peers. Now, however... Like the 3D, you've brought to my notice the other distractions. Before your little red book of rules was released, people munching on popcorn, slurping on drinks was acceptable. It's with the cinema. What do you expect? People going to the toilets, fine. Look at the size of the fizzy drink they've just had. A baby crying, I would shrug off. Nice to see a family outing. I'm sure it's a family film. What did I expect? People coming in slightly late, lucky them. They lucky missed them. the endless adverts. People taking off their shoes, good idea. They must be really relaxed, looking forward to the film. <laughs> I'll do the same. Telephone, sure, as long as I can't hear them. What's the difference? Maybe it is important. But now... But now... Now I notice everything. Now everything's drawn to my attention. You've turned me from a pleasant cinema goer to a foul-tempered, teeth-gritting, erupting volcano of you can't do that, you know the rules, where's the usher? I'm now a Jack Nicholson in as-good-as-it-gets sort of grump. Thanks a lot, guys. You've created a living, breathing, breathing comedian rant. I am... Kerm... I am... Kermodienstein... I'm... Kerm... I don't know. So, that like a Frank... Kermodienstein monster. OK. There you go. Well, Thank you, Liam. We've spoiled it for everybody. They used to be they used to be fine. Who cares what mess and what noise everyone's yeah. up to? But now we've Look. drawn everyone's attention to it and that's spoiled it. Dorset Dave says, Barry and Paul, this is the, my first time of writing. I sit in the OMG section of the church, occasional moviegoers, which I like to think is a largest group sitting near the back of the nave on the left. I make the odd foray, usually prompted by yourselves, to the wonderful independent Retro Plaza Cinema in Dorchester, which you mentioned last week, £2.50. That's right. Yeah, amazing. I'm finally prompted to write to say thank you for your reminder to listen to Tom Hanks on Desert Island Discs, or as one says in this attention deficit world, DID. <laughs> when the podcast ended... I sat in silence in the car, pondering why I felt so heartwarmed and why Tom is the wittertainment guest who is, more than any other, welcome at any time. It's true. It occurred to me, says Dorset Dave, that I think of your uh, fine show as radio with a twinkle in its eye, a Wizard of Oz of a show with a heart, a brain, courage, the occasional song and many a chuckle. Now, that is, of course, what you get with Tom. Someone whose company is warm and uplifting and leaves you with a spontaneous smile on your face. And this, in turn, is why Tom fits so seamlessly into the wit experience. You are kindred spirits. I am therefore keenly looking forward to Simon's latest interview with him, ready to grin foolishly and chuckle heartily. In the meantime, thank you for your company on long work journeys. Hello to Jason and to Tom, and not forgetting the recently dethroned young Tom. (laughs) From a couple of weeks ago. Yes. Well, that's you know that's that's very nice. Thank you very much. Indeed. Excellent. Um, and it is worth checking out DID. <clears throat> but hang on, because you might want to hear what we've done with him first of all. 
Should we do the box office top ten? I think we should do. There's just a lot of stuff to get. Sure. To. I'm just going to do this before we get to the box office top ten. I love the way you do that. Shall we do this? Yes. All right. I'm just going to do something else first. It's, it's just, like. Well, why did you even bother to ask me? It's, it's like being at home. It, just it's re- exactly like I'm that. Recreating it for you. Dan Phillips, okay, and box office top ten coming up next. Mm. Although I am a sort of Dell boy of careers, dipping my toe into most media, film and theatre-related jobs, I'm currently teaching film and media studies to students of GCSE and A-level. As a long-term Wittertainee, uh, and having had an email read out about the amazing film that is Pride, I was the self-titled Welsh gayer, if you remember <laughs> Simon's awkwardness in repeating it. <laughs> well, just overly sensitive. <laughs> I... Tr- so, thank you. I try and spread the good word of your church whenever surrounded by easy, easily influenced young film buffs. Well, said buffs are currently in deep revision for their exams, which take place next week. So I wondered whether you could reach out to them. And then you and, lost me. And say, hang on, and say that everything will be all right. Exams are rubbish, but the light is very much something tunnel-related. Just remember, look at the use of camera angles, mise-en-scene, editing and sound, and if nothing else sticks, please get diegetic and non-diegetic sound the right way round. Yeah, that is true. That diegetic sound whose source is invisible on the screen, non-diegetic sound whose source neither visible on the screen nor implied to be present in the action, like a narrator's commentary or mood music. I looked that up all by myself. Well done. It's called research. Very good. Thank you very much. Very good. Uh, it, will, it will all be all right, but can we all stop reaching out? Okay. That's, yeah, OK. We're not reaching out. We're not but reaching it, out, but, but everything will be all right. Be all right. It, everything is going to be all right. So here we go. The box office top ten. At number ten, it's Green Room. I really liked it. I'm a huge fan of Jeremy Saulnier. I thought it was one of those films in which it went from really uh, gripping, nail-biting tension to sudden outbursts of very, very affecting violence, um, but also with this kind of dark streak of humour running all the way through it. And um, I thought it was a really good, stripped-down horror movie that delivered that at its toughest moments referred to films like Last House on the Left other times was like a, you know Assault on Precinct 13 and uh, yeah it really did the job for me uh, Matthew Reynolds in Rome uh, Green Room loved it I will never watch it again I'm still somewhat clenched yes <laughs> that's very good <laughs> Uh, Rob Hackett, the aforementioned Rob Hackett. The setup gripped me tightly around the throat, tense, unpredictable, great piece of economical storytelling. Unfortunately, once the slasher tropes and the graphic blood and gut started flowing, tension and suspense were, re- were replaced with a more conventional horror film. Yes, I jumped when I was supposed to, so hats off to the prosthetics department, but if the writer had invested more into the timely neo-Nazi subject, he would have given more depth and weight to the film. Without this, it came... Uh, Signposted and too neat. Neo-Nazis, bad. People in bands, good and very likely to die. As a fan of Blue Ruin, I had hoped for some genre bending rather than genre conforming. That said, worth seeing for Patrick Stewart's killer performance, which should have made, uh, should have had more of been made. OK, yeah, um, I, I disagree completely about the, the, the genre bending thing. I mean, what happened in Blue Ruin is it was basically, let's see what, what a revenge movie would look like if it involved real people and took place after the revenge. In the case of this, it's what would a siege movie look like if we took away all the rules about how, you know, what happens and in what order it happens. Like, try applying the screen rules to a Green Room and added, added an element of randomness which meant that when things happen, you genuinely don't expect them to happen. I mean, believe me, I've seen a lot of horror movies and there were many moments in Green Room in which I, when I didn't see that coming. 
Uh, number nine is Eye in the Sky. Liked it very much. And we've had such great response to it from people who are, you know, talking about it as a sort of profound philosophical work to people who are talking about it as a, a really good solid thriller. And I think it just goes to demonstrate that the trailer massively undersold it because before you went to see it, you were convinced it was going to be bad. Because, yes. you know, we, I mean, in, in, in this day and age in which trailers for everything make them look good, how did they make a bad eye in the sky trailer? Uh, number eight is 28 Days Later, Secret Cinema. So. Still haven't been to Secret yeah. Cinema, so I don't know. I like 28 Days Later, but I don't know what the Secret Cinema presentation's like. Everybody wants Here um, we go. Is it number seven? Shall I just do all my stuff here? Yeah. Can I just say at the beginning, the one thing that's, that's interesting is there's been an awful lot of people being... You don't like everybody wants some because you're just such a you know such a feminist. Oh, it's it's like, can we be absolutely clear? Does anyone actually talk like that? They do, and they when they write, that's what the Charlie Brooker once they have said, a snooty font. Charlie Brooker once said that when people wrote comments underneath his articles, he always read them in a particular voice, and he said that if they if they were anonymous, he just wanted to have them animated with a squawking chicken. Under the right, yeah. But there has been an awful lot of oh yeah, well he just doesn't like that because like he brings all these politics to things. Yeah. Like it's like really bringing politics to something which is I'm sorry this entire film consists of a bunch of jocks who I don't like and whom are not made sympathetic and believe me I've watched loads of films about people who I wouldn't like but the film makes me interested in their outcome and the disappointment for me is that Richard Linklater in the past has been so brilliant in uh, in uh, you know uh, d- doing characters of all hues and genders and ages and I just thought it was a disappointment in the case of Everybody Wants Some he was clearly in love with those blokes and gave me no reason to be interested in them. Uh, at the top of this email, I've written Andy Graham and Emma. This is because while I was preparing all this stuff, because believe it or not, mm. I've read them. I actually you read do read them, them in advance. Yeah, in advance. This guy uh, in the coffee shop said, are you Simon May? I said, yeah. He said, I'm Andy Graham. I'm going for a job. Can you say hello to Emma when you do the show? Fine. So there you go. Just well done. I hope you got the job, Andy. Uh, it's a, and it's on top of an email from Molly Ward, BA Film Studies, University of Southampton, 2008 to 2011. I saw Everybody Wants Some last week on my own. I had a great time. Good. I'm part of a generation brought up on films such as American Pie and TV shows like The Inbetweeners, so I find all those lad jokes pretty funny. However, there was one moment in the film that totally took me out of my enjoyment. When some of the guys were getting lucky, there was a close-up that filled the whole cinema screen of a girl's butt, mm. closely followed by a shot of a girl's boob gracefully falling out of her bra. Yeah. I was hoping that, with this being 2016 and all, this would maybe be followed by some gratuitous male nudity. Alas, no. But in all seriousness, I'm so bored of women's bodies being their defining feature, not a personality. I felt a little disappointed at these shots when I saw the film. I understand they were seeing it from their point of view, but I felt that they were totally uh, unnecessary. Simon in Streatham Hill. Uh, I'm writing for the first time, and to my surprise, in severe disagreement with Mark. My wife kindly uh, got me a preview ticket at the Ritzy in London for Everybody Wants Some. With Rick Linklater in attendance afterwards, I found the film to be absurdly hilarious and a wonderful celebration of the posturing of teenage male life. I, like Mark, avoided jocks at university and would leave the room whenever they appeared. However, that is a very poor reason to dislike a film and I'm quite shocked that he seemed to dismiss it simply on this premise. One has to be open to lives that folk live, and film has always acted as a great way to learn about them. There was no allegory to this. It was just plain fun watching guys out-stupid each other. This really reminds me of the competitiveness of my friends when growing up and the lengths we go to to be noticed and feel like we're achieving in life. No one was supposed to be likeable in this. The point was that it was about growing up and the pressure boys and men can be put under to be something in this world. Yours with an open mind, Simon from Streatham. 
thank you for the email. Two things. I didn't dismiss it. If you go back and uh, listen to the review, I said a lot of positive things about it. But I do have a problem with the way in which it uh, it portrays its characters, which just seemed to me to be kind of fairly uninteresting. Secondly, um, I'm very glad you enjoyed it. And I absolutely understand that I am very, very out of step with many people. And that's perfect. That's great. But uh, I don't dislike it for the reasons that, peop- that, that people think. It's not like, oh, I've got a political problem with it. It's a dramatic general problem with it. And I also think that the characters are meant to be likable because when you said to Linklater, are they really that horrible? He was slightly taken aback because it's evident that he does not think they're horrible. Martha Elwell, 21, recent grad, temporarily unemployed cinema wanderer. Everybody wants some sounding like the kind of movie I have come to hate as my movie watching has become more concerted. Surely we don't want another movie about a bunch of super able-bodied, almost all white guys playing pranks on one another and trying to get laid, surely. But I thought most of your reviews, most of the reviews, yours notwithstanding, have actually been quite good. Plus, Linklater is not his genius as a writer and director for showing new and compelling things about the human experience, even about those experiences one might think exhausted by film and other artistic exposition. With this in mind, I braved a rather empty showing on Tuesday evening at The View in Westfield in London, well, dudes, it was a disappointment. Actually, to be more accurate, and I'm changing the language here, <laughs> I was really annoyed by it and hacked off quite a lot. <laughs> Far be it from me or anyone to say what movies should or should not be made. But if you are an influential alternative director with the power to make almost any film you want, I am extremely annoyed and slightly hacked off. <laughs> when you make a film whose message is effectively... You know those guys, those privileged white guys who act like entitled misogynistic people in college, then go on to dominate every position of authority in society, including apparently directing the movies we watch? They are, guess what, not so bad. They're like you and me. They just want acceptance. The film is not funny or charming. I kept waiting for something interesting to happen to break the boring monotony of guys ragging on each other but getting basically exactly what they want in us. Are they ragging me since you're in? Characterises the entire macho ordeal but to no avail. This really disappointed me in the critical praise being given to this film in the context of a white male-dominated movie industry, including, incidentally, professional film reviewing. Really great. Yeah, good points. Well made. Uh, everyone wants something number seven. Our kind of traitor number six, which I liked much more than I'd expected. I knew very little about it before, um, but I thought it was uh, an int- it was one of those thrillers that I found myself about halfway through thinking, actually, I am genuinely quite thrilled. I want to know what happens to these. I want to know how this thing pans out. I want to know partly because I think there are some terrific performances. I mean, Stalin Scar's going to be talked about before, but I think it's it's well directed, well told, and it kind of crept up on me because I hadn't gone in expecting very much. I thought it was just going to be a sort of you know a standard you know piece of multiplex fare, but it turned out to be much more than that. And I liked it very much. Uh, Patrick Noon, I'm on my way home from the cinema. I was convinced that Mark would think this film, our kind of traitor, nuts and bolts, thriller by numbers. Uh, but I was dumbfounded to find Mark was gripped by it. Yeah, I was, enjoyed yeah. the performance and cinematography. I thought McGregor was poor, really didn't suit the role or his haircut. The rest of the cast <laughs> felt like they were plucked from making made-for-TV movies to have a go at film. I noticed the cinematography at several points, but in a way that jarred with me. The film seemed to be relying on the cinematography to ramp up the non-existent tension. Damien Lewis and Mark Gatiss's accents were the highlight of this almost instantly forgettable film. Well, there we go. I mean, James yeah. Hewland. 
Another shallow boy's own fantasy with a pedestrian script, no interesting characters and plot holes a mile wide. I guess it doesn't help that I find Ewan McGregor as heroic as a damp flannel. I just kept thinking how weird his blue contacts were and how I would chop that lank hair off. If only I had a pair of scissors. Only Stellan Skarsgård kept me in my seat. Yes, as Mark said, the film had that airport fiction quality that makes you keep turning the pages. You want to get to the end, but the viewing experience was like the giant bucket of popcorn that went with it. You can't stop eating it, but when it's over, you feel bloated and uncomfortable, full of something that has no flavour or bite or depth and no nutritional value. Okay. Apart from that, they agree with you completely. No, but that's fine. That's the whole point is difference of opinion is fine. The only thing I object to is... People saying, well, you only think that because, insert completely reductive thing here. Florence Foster Jenkins at five. Really enjoyed it. And I think I enjoyed it more than you did. Um, and particularly having seen Marguerite. And I enjoyed it. You no, know, I know you did. And I I really like it. There was somebody sent me a, a, a picture of a, a, a cinema hoarding that said outside, everybody wants some Florence Foster Jenkins. <laughs> I thought, actually, that's, that's exactly right. No, I, th- I thought Meryl Street was terrific in it. Um, and I... I, I I thought it. I thought crucially, you laugh with rather than at her. I know that you and I no, you quite a, laugh both. Yeah, fine. Okay, both. Yeah, so I'm agreeing and disagreeing. I think just time. with, but there we go. But you're wrong there. It's fine. You know, bad neighbours two is, is it number four. Weirdly enough, bad neighbours two is more progressive in its gender politics than everybody wants. Oh, there you go again. I know. Just reducing everything to. <laughs> Just simple... Bringing your politics into I everything. know. Stop it. And you do it all the time as no, well. Sorry about that. I heard you being nice to somebody on the radio the other day, you and your nice politics. Sorry about that too. Uh, Is that L- a film? Sorry about that too. I didn't see Sorry About That one. Was it good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was. <laughs> so it's Sorry About That too. still Sorry About That. I, I learnt a fabulous word. Go on. Uh, from my friend uh, Martin the other day. Yeah. And the word is antisappointment. <laughs> and, and I've been able to use it so many I can, times. I can tell. There are so many things that you kind of, well, I'm sort of looking forward to this weekend, but I suspect at the end it, there'll be some, so it's that and disappointment, and disappointment that you're going to use for that. That's great. Just uh, L. Wadsworth. Um, I didn't think I'd be doing my first email about Bad Neighbours 2, but here it is. My partner and I went to see it at the Peckham Plex in London and we liked it. We watched Bad Neighbours last week, thought it was fine, so felt OK about paying money to see the sequel. What was particularly refreshing was to see the fact that Chloe Moretz didn't have a love interest. The fact her virginity wasn't a plot point. It was merely celebrated in a party for a, a, a few brief seconds. It passed the Bechdel test and the Six Laugh test with ease. All in all, we'd happily see it again and happy anniversary. And, to uh, and, and who, who would have figured, right? Who would have figured that that was the case? Angry Birds 2. Now, Angry Birds is no, that Well, Jungle Book. Brilliant, 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 yes. brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Angry Birds 2. Actually, uh, number three, it's the Jungle Book. Yeah, brilliant, 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 brilliant. Number brilliant, two, brilliant. it's Angry Birds. Thank you. And the, and, hastening on. and the funny thing with Angry Birds is it, you know, it, I've seen much worse. It, it's I know what it, you know, it's an adaptation of a game and the blah blah blah. But I laughed a couple of times, and it was much. I mean, it's not the Lego Movie by a million miles, but neither is it Ratchet and Clank, and neither is it Super Mario Brothers. I thought it was kind of colourful and funny. Dave Laurie says you know. Bright and Bouncy never escapes the feeling though that nobody really knew how to convert the game into a narrative and pads it out to a film length with extraneous and downright weird interludes. Yeah, the downright weird interludes is fine, but then, you know, as a fan of SpongeBob SpongeBob SquarePants, I have no problem with downright weird. Tom Hanks is on the way. Let me just do so the UK's number one is still Captain America's Civil War. Which I liked. It's overstuffed with characters. It does resemble a uh, you know, a cosplay marathon. But uh, it after Batman versus Superman dodge, I thought it was at least it was nice to see a superhero movie that wanted you to enjoy it. An email from Jack Robertson. 
Uh, my name is Jack. My father and I have been listening to your show for a while now. All I can say is I can't wait to listen to you guys every week. I'm 12. I live in the wonderful and very green New Zealand. Wow. Dad, my little brother and I watch Captain America's Civil War, C-A-C-W, last week. Hands down, one of the best Marvel Cinematic Universe movies to date. Had great fighting sequences and amazing cinematography, especially in the chase scene in the tunnel with Black Panther. I never thought Spider-Man would be good in this movie, but boy, was I wrong. I think a lot of people will agree with me when I say that he was like Tobey Maguire. Uh, but as a teenager instead. Above all, it had a perfect story. So I, I know at least one teenager who has seen Captain America Civil War three times, loves it to pieces. Are you related probably going again. Yes, there you go. And are you paying for all of them? Yes. Yes, probably, that's the way. In a very real way. So, uh, reviews to come for brand new movies include? Uh, we're going to be doing Sing Street, which is the movie by John Carney. We're going to be doing uh, X-Men uh, Apocalypse. I keep wanting to call it X-Men Apocalypto. And, of course... A hologram for the King with a special guest, Tom Hanks. Dom in Sheffield, <clears throat> this is Dominic Skelton. Yes. I had to chuckle at the listener's rant just now over being turned into a grump by the Code of Conduct. Yeah. Before, he was perfectly fine with sloppy behaviour, but we've uh, we've retuned him. But I was surprised that he was struggling to find a label for this condition. Maybe the church needs a new corner akin to the quiet coach on a train, which is for the curmudgeons. Very good. K-E-R. Yeah, no, I know. Obviously, just yeah, checking. I got it. Eloise in Belfast, I'd like to kindly request a was-up for a delightful young gentleman working in the Odeon Belfast at the Newbies Parent and Evening Screening of Florence Foster Jenkins earlier this week. While getting a hot beverage on arrival and having a quick chat with him about the film, I said Meryl Streep, he said Muriel Strepsil, with a slight glint in his eye. I just had to ask if he was a fellow listener, and he's a huge fan. I'm sure a was-up would mean an awful lot to him, so whoever you are, was-up. Thank you very much indeed. Right then. Right then. Should we talk to Tom? Well, you can. I'm just going to listen to you talking to Tom. OK. There's a new Tom Hanks movie. It's called A Hologram for the King. We'll talk to Tom after this clip. King is not coming today, so you guys can just relax. Shouldn't we call corporate and let him know the conditions here are untenable? No, Brad. We should wait until I talk to Kareem Alamad at 3 o'clock. Do you know why we're not in that building? Well, maybe all the vendors are in here. And maybe we're just the first. Kind of weird being railing and being out here. It's a brand new city. It's uncharted territory, and we are the trailblazers. Where are we supposed to eat? Guys, come on. We are in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia with the deserts and the camels and the sheiks and the tents. And that is a clip from A Hologram for a King. It stars Tom Hanks. Uh, Tom, hello. How are you, sir? I'm good. I love that. I thought you were going to go on with a few other people. There. No? You know. You're on the poster. Alexander Black, Sarita Chudery. No, I guess yeah. it's just me. Jeez, a solo, solo shot. Yeah. Are they on the poster? No, they are not on the poster. No. So therefore, <laughs> I, therefore, they don't exist, do they? That's exactly. right. We can, we can refer to them in the broader context of the film. You know, there's a, there's a whole, there's a phase of Hollywood that you go through in which people say, look, I, I, I want you to do the part but I cannot pay you any money. But I will give you something that is just as valuable, if not more valuable. I will give you billing, which means you get your name. <laughs> you, don't, you don't make a dime off it. That means if you're going past drive-in movie theaters in Alabama, you get to see your name up above the title of something. Tom Wilkinson said on the show a couple of years back about how important it is to ask for the and. So oh, yeah. There, there was a movie he'd been in, and there was a whole host of stars, and then it said, 
and Tom yeah. Wilkins, you know, and that I think it's the same kind of thing. I can't, we can't pay you a whole lot of cash, but we'll give you an ad. And they fight, they fight against that. They don't want. Be, I don't know. Do you have to pay money for those three A N D, the extra three little. And sometimes words? it's with as well. That's that. I think that's a, that's a compromise that they will do with it. The the one that that you that that or that that people try to fight, and I remember seeing a movie with this is introducing. That's a big deal. You know what? In the movie Zulu, you know who was at the end and introducing? Really? Michael Caine. Wow. Yeah, how about that? And introducing Michael Caine. We had a game, actually, Mark Strong suggested that we play it, which was there's and and there's with. He said there are some movies that should have a but. <laughs> or a however. <laughs> which, uh, or just also. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, none of which is relevant to a hologram. No, I think it's right. <laughs> part and parcel, the way things are going. Is that right? Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, and you play Alan Clay. Tell us, um, tell us about this guy, because he's, he's an intriguing Man, kind of like at a crossroads in his life. Well, I think well, there was one way you could look at it and say, and he's at a he's at a he's at a midlife crisis. He's actually too old to have a midlife <laughs> crisis. This is like the what is it, the late life crisis? Mm-hmm. You know, he's definitely on the back nine. He is not. You know, he he's dealing with the global um, economic meltdown that went to, but he's not a victim. He was actually a participant because years ago, you don't. What was the what is the great what was the greatest bicycle you could have? As a young man in England. In this country? A rally. Okay. In, in the United States, we had a Schwinn. The Schwinn bikes were, the, were, the, uh, were like a rally. Um, I never had a Schwinn bicycle in my life. I got the knockoff Wildcats. I got the <laughs> Renegades. I had the Montgomery Wards. And version. it hurt. And, Well, it, it was definitely a status symbol around the apartment complex yeah. that I lived in. There were, might be three kids that would have Schwinns. And you looked upon them as being either rich or lucky, but definitely a status above you. Alan Clay used to run the Schwinn Bicycle Company. And as an executive, he thought it was a good idea to do things like cut the cost of parts, maybe move the factory to China where they could build bicycles a little bit better and you, you raise your profit margin. So he is, in fact, one of the signatories of the great loss of manufacturing jobs in the United States, because as as exampled by the company that he runs, so now he is paying the price for that rationale. He's paying the price for those actions. He's now reduced to being a salesman for a company that produces a technology that he can't really understand. And if he doesn't, if he doesn't make this sale to the king of Saudi Arabia for his three-dimensional holographic video tele- the video conferencing technology, um, his life actually, as he knows it, is going to completely come to an end. So a guy a bit at his uh, seeking, seeking the moment of hope at the beginning of the morning that, that seems to keep us all going on, and it's just not there. There's not, there's not a spark of, uh, of optimism on the, on the horizon for him at the beginning of the yeah. film. But, so even though he's, a, he's part of the problem, mm-hmm. the way you've described it, Many Americans, many people across the world will identify with his sense of bemusement and befuddlement about. I mean, in fact, right at the very beginning of the movie, when you do the lines from the Tom, from the uh, from the Talking Heads, oh, talking heads song, movie, yeah. and and you say, "Well, how did I get here?" Yeah, and, no, and you know, you've lost the beautiful wife, and you've lost the beautiful car, and how did I get here? That sort of sense of bemusement, a lot of people will go, "I identify with that." Oh, the, the, you're supposed to have those kind of crises and moments of... Everybody crosses the Rubicon at some point. But you cross the Rubicon when you're a younger man, <laughs> you know? When you're 24 or when you're, when you're 28 or when you're 36, you have those moments when you have to declare what the future is. Alan Clay is once again at the Rubicon, and 
there's no guarantee of anything good happening once he steps into those waters and, and makes it makes it the way across. He is he is in a place where, um, you know, we all have we all sometimes operate totally on the fuel of our own enthusiasm, on the fire of our own confidence in ourselves. And if you don't have that, it's it becomes impossible to fake. <laughs> you can't fake having confidence at some point. Um, and for Alan Clay to have to go. Uh, and deal with all of the minutia of, of this, the, the rules of a place like the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, um, he is just barely able to fake a confidence that he does not have. And Saudi Arabia feels like the moon. I mean, maybe it feels like the moon to him, but it feels like the it, because <clears throat> sometimes the movie feels like science fiction. Well, it's, a, it's an odd place. You, you, if you mention Saudi Arabia to most people, they think of two, one of three things. They think of Lawrence of Arabia... You know, Akbar. You think of uh, religious zealotry in which people get their heads chopped off and there's great cruelty. Or you just assume, well, they're all rich. They have all the oil. So everybody is a millionaire and drives Mercedes Benz. It's actually a much more complex place than that. There's, uh, there's uh, just as much of, uh, confusion and lack of purpose. In fact, uh, there, we have a line in the, in the film. It says, so you, you don't really have unions here in Saudi Arabia. He said, no, we have Filipinos, which means other people have come in and do all the menial work for us. Um, so, yes, the moon, better yet, Mars, or one of the moons of, uh, of Saturn. It, it makes no sense to Alan Clay whatsoever. And it really, and it al- almost never does. And he ends up, I think, in some ways living the way no small amount of Saudis do, which is completely in his own world. Uh, governing, living the way he wants to inside a, a very tightly controlled little uh, little realm of expertise. I haven't read the book, but I ah. from from what uh, others are commenting on it, your your movie is a more optimistic has a more optimistic tone to the book. Would that be fair? Well, I think it is be fair because Tom Tickford, who directed yeah. and adapted Dave Eggers' novel, and and Dave was involved every step of the way, says that you you can have. You can have one sense in literature, but cinema, it, it, cinema, there has to be some degree of hope. I think there is a very much a, <clears throat> there is a philosophical DNA to the book that we have in the movie, without question. Uh, uh, and the, the, the place that Alan is left in is still, we have no idea what's going on in the future. He's still in a, in a place of stasis. But the difference between the book and the movie is you have a feeling that he's going to work, it's going to be able to work himself out of this. He actually has an ally now. He belongs to something that's bigger than himself, which is different from Dave. Dave's not a, Dave's not a pessimistic guy, but let's just say that Dave is a type of guy who, um, who is going to be satisfied if, uh, if Alan Clay is at the same exact place at the beginning as he is at the end, uh, uh, meaning like this degree of what the hell is going to happen tomorrow. At the end of our movie, he is actually going to say, he actually says to some degree, says, I think it's going to be okay. And that small little difference is different from the book, without a doubt, but I think it's philosophically still the same thing that Dave is saying. Uh, and is it a coincidence that you're, you're working on, have worked on another Dave Eggers novel for The Circle? Which uh, is- that came up. You know, Dave, Dave doesn't need his novels to be turned into movies. Between the work that he does and all of his writing and also with McSweeney's, which is a whole other publishing arm that he does. When we met him, uh, Tom and I, uh, I was still operating on the Dave Eggers that wrote this amazing uh, uh, his 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 uh, memoir called Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius that I happen to know 
in Hollywood, everybody was trying to get. I spoke to guys and said, no, I cracked that book. I got an, I, I've got the adaptation in my head. I know how to turn that into a movie. And <clears throat> when we met, I said, Dave, you're the smartest guy in the world. There's, you've never let anybody make movies out of your books. The heartbreaking work of Staggering Jesus can only exist as a memoir. Don't let anybody touch that. On that note, however, let me just say, <laughs> <laughs> Tom and I agree, Tom Tickford and I agree that uh, that hologram for the king always is a movie. Now, the circle that we're doing next with uh, Emily Watson, it all, I mean, again, he, he writes stuff that you can't predict where they're going. And they take, they take the grain of the way uh, the, the world actually operates today and sort of like puts it into a mix mass here, a wearing blender, and, uh, and turns it on high. And the thing that comes out is always surprising. The last time you, were, you came on the show was with Steven Spielberg talking about Bridges Spice, which kind of worked out quite well for you. Yeah, did good. And also Mr. Mark Rylance seemed to do just fine and dandy, didn't he? He did see, yeah, yeah, he did. I remember, I remember making the movie and looking at Mark, and the second time he looked at me and said, well, would it help? I said, there goes the movie. I don't have this movie anymore. <laughs> this movie just became Mark Rylance's movie. Dad, dang it. And pe people do quote that exchange as yeah. actually quite a, a, a profound moment. You know, you don't look worried. Would it help? Would it help? Yeah, yeah. it actually is. Yeah. Uh, and, when, and when you did that interview, you had white hair. Oh, because yeah. Because you were, yeah. I think you'd been Sully. You were about to be Sully. You were in the process of being Sully. Where is that in the... Uh, uh, we finished in... that. We shot that with, uh, with Clint Eastwood. Uh, we finished that last November. Uh, actually, I saw a cut of it. Uh, just not... Clint's an Clint's Clint's interesting guy. You call him up on the phone. I called him on the phone. I said, hey, boss, how you doing? Yeah, pretty good. I said, uh, how's the movie going? It uh, came out well. Came out well. <laughs> and I said... Um, Anything I can do to help? I mean, he said, uh, actually, you know, uh, I'd like to show it to you in a week or two. <laughs> I said, whatever you want. But, and then I saw it, and I, I called him up. Hey, that turned out pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I think it came out nice. So that's, uh, that's, that's dealing with Clint Eastwood. What you're saying is he's exactly the same on the phone he as is, he is in the movies. You know, as a matter of fact, I had a meeting with him, and I was talking to him about ideas of what to do, and he had the look on his face that was literally... Make my day, punk. You know, you're feeling like he was he was scowling at me. He was squinting at me. And I thought, have I just said something that's going to get me shot? And it turns out that's, that's just the way he ponders things with that. You feel lucky, punk. Did you make his day? I did make his day. I think I, I geez, I hope so. Can you can you reassure, can, can you tell us anything about Toy Story 4 and 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 people who think you met you were part of maybe the greatest trilogy in movie history. We have already recorded yes. uh, some sections of Toy Story 4. Tell us it's great. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't get to see that. They now keep this, like, secret, you know, that I only really am... They used to have an entire script, like a regular movie. Then they just started showing us the storyboards. Here's what you're going to do. Here's what you're going to do. And then once they showed us an animatic on the third movie, they actually put us all together in a room and we watched an animatic with scratch, uh, scratch dialogue. Uh, Jeff and we saw the whole movie before we recorded a single word of it. Now they just show us the stuff that we're in and they keep everything else like sort of top secret. So I've, I've gone on and I've worked alone and I've worked with Annie Potts who plays Bo Peep. Um, and these, the thing is that the animated movies, they take about three and a half years to make. You go in about every six months and do a little bit of work. Uh, but it's, uh, it's definitely in the process and will be out soon. And what's funny is, is that there are now grown-ups with their own kids that were young when they saw the first Toy Story. And um, here's, here's, the, here's the smartest thing I ever did. I don't drink a lot. 
and I don't smoke at all. So my voice is still high pitched and whiny. So I can actually I can actually match Woody of twenty three years ago on the because they have every line I've ever said uh, on the DAT. They've got it in a hard drive somewhere, and I can more or less sound wow. the same. And uh, and our condolences about Aston Villa. Um, it must have been a, a tough few weeks for you. You're a cruel man. You're a cruel, cruel man. Here's what I would have liked to have done is just come over at the beginning of the season and put, say, you know, 100 quid on Leicester at 5,000 to 1. I wonder if anybody has done that, just to take a shot at that. But don't, don't look at me with those Aston Villa eyes. Don't, don't look at me buy, with those You could buy the club. You could buy the club. Come on. <laughs> I think it's for sale. Listen, it's happened before. Every team goes through, uh, you know, peaks and valleys. We're in a bit of a valley right now. But all good things come to those who wait. Uh, Tom, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Delightful. Thank you so much. Tom Hanks talking about you. Delightful. I've got Aston Villa eyes. I don't want to have Aston Villa eyes. Wasn't that uh, a hit for Tim Carnes? Tim Carnes, yeah. (laughs) What do Aston Villa eyes even look like? Sort of sadly disappointed. Do you remember uh, Half Half Man, Half Biscuit had a record called Dickie Davis Eyes? I don't remember that. Don't you? How did it go? I can't sing it. it. Is it worth putting on the... Putting on the playlist? I, to be honest, I can't bring it to mind other than the title. I'm sure, you know, it's Half Man, Half Biscuit. Always very funny. Always very funny. Uh, one-way ticket, smooth and commendable, go-by-bus, they're highly dependable. The swings in the parks for the kids have won awards, clean streets, acknowledged in the Lords. What's a park if you can't see a linnet? A timetable if your journey's infinite. My bag's packed and I'm leaving in a minute. What is Chatteris without you in it? I'm really impressed. Thank you. That's for what is Chatteris by Half Man, Half Biscuit. Yeah, you really are on the playlist by the end of the show. Fine. That's where that's going. Anyway, uh, let's talk uh, Hanksy. One of the things that happened during that interview was that Robin, our editor, said, esteemed editor, esteemed editor, said, What's an animatic? And, and as far as I understand, an animatic is an, anim- an animated series of storyboards. I think that's right. It's, yeah. you know. Or the, or the singer in Scissor Sisters. <laughs> That's right, yes. We both made that joke almost at the same Facile time. Facile DJ joke. But hang on, but so I, have, I have looked it up, so hang on, this is... Okay, so according to the intraweb, simply put, animatic is animated storyboards that are brought into an editing programme and are cut together with the correct timing and pace of the film. They include basic sound effects, dialogue recordings and scratch soundtrack. So that's what he's talking about. When he says, basically what he's looking at is a kind of a moving blueprint of what the film will look like before they actually turn it into you know, proper animation. Yes. And the movie, what did you think of the... Oh, no, no sorry, sorry, sorry. No, fine. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, here's what I think about it. I think it starts really strongly, and that sequence is very heavily trailed, with Tom Hanks walking out the house and doing, and you may find yourself, blah, 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 you know, without a beautiful house, without a beautiful wife, without a beautiful car, and you may ask yourself, and what he actually says is, how did I get here? Because he slightly changes the words of the thing. And uh, that's a really kind of punchy, you know, oh, is this going to, wow, this, you know, puffs of purple smoke and all that sort of stuff. After that opening, which is very arresting, the film then settles down, settles down into an altogether more sort of sappy stride in which uh, central character played by Tom Hanks, who struggles to not be likable. I think that's, you know, you, it's, I've, I, I struggle to remember a film in which he wasn't likable. 
finds himself in this. I know he says he's too, too old to be midlife, but it is still essentially a midlife crisis that his marriage has fallen apart. He's penning uh, letters to his uh, daughter, who he feels that he's terribly letting down. He has to secure this deal, but he's in the middle of nowhere. Um, selling a sort of virtual reality communication system in a city that hasn't yet been built by a king who is notable only by his absence. And he starts to unravel. And all his sort of pent-up angst and worry seems to be gathering together in this strange lump on the back of his on his back which actually started me thinking about how to get ahead in advertising and uh during the course of the the drama he worries about the lump he worries about whether the lump is making him actually feel bad or whether he's just feeling bad because he's and it's really horrible so he's a very horrible lump of spiders in there yeah Exactly, and but he said, but he says the same thing, doesn't he? He says either it's a cyst or it's a nest of spiders, um, and then he starts to develop these uh, relationships. Firstly, with his chauffeur, come guide, who sort of teaches him about what the country's really like. Then with Sri Chaudhary's uh, doctor, with whom there's a sort of what begins as a subplot and actually becomes the most interesting part of the story, which is his blossoming relationship with her. And then all the time, this, this thing is going on in the background, which Tom Hanks alluded to there which is this weird sort of anxiety about the outsourcing of home industries to China. And I have to say that I found it a very odd and not entirely satisfactory melange of different things. It's personal and it's political and it's also a bit sort of... It's also a bit meandering, frankly. And there were there were a lot of times... I mean, it reminded me... Do you remember when um, Hanks himself directed that movie Larry Crown? Which had, it, Is that Julia Roberts? Uh, yeah, that's right. Tom Hanks and Julia yes. Roberts. And I had the same feeling about Larry Crown, which was that, you know, it had a sort of heart and soul. And yet what it couldn't quite do was find exactly the way in which it wanted to tell its story. And in the case of this, there are some terrific performances. There is some stuff which just kind of gets completely lost in the mix. Like when we're doing these flashbacks to his past, you know, and to and when we're actually realising that what he's worrying about is the way in which he has been sort of responsible for his own end. He's the person who was he gets asked, you know, would you, would you go back and do it differently now? And he says, well, it was a different time. So it's all about musing over those regrets. And all the time I was watching it, I had this thought. I bet this is really good in the book. And that slightly worries me because... I had the feeling that what Tom Tickford had done was to take a run at a story that actually hadn't managed to get onto the screen, that that felt like it couldn't quite get into its stride, that crucially, despite some terrific performances, um, never found that magical spark that made it work as a film. So, much as I will watch Tom Hanks doing anything at all. And much as I think there are some there are some very interesting moments in it, particularly to do with the sort of blossoming relationship and what actually seemed to me to be a genuine attempt to put on screen a relationship that isn't between, you know, that isn't the kind of relationship that's in everybody wants some, that has actually got some kind of background and some sort of... And there were things that it did that were adventurous, but I, it did feel very all over the place. And it did feel to me like somewhere in the back of this, there is a book that I ought to read because I'm sure the book makes much more sense. Yourself? Yeah, no, but, uh, yes. And uh, and a book, as, a, as we mentioned in the interview, which is less optimistic in tone than the movie, but you imagine that's because Tom Hanks is in it and he sort of generates that optimism and feel-good ending. Yeah, and also because the film felt like it, like it wanted to be uplifting, regardless of what was going on. Still to come, uh, Sing Street, uh, X Men, Apocalypse, Chicken, and more. Just finally on the Tom Hanks movie, I is it the kind of movie that you're surprised to see Tom Hanks in? No, because that was what I meant with the the Larry Crown thing. Is that it, 
I mean, obviously, he's been key in getting this the project together. And when you look at the things that he does personally, they do have this. this is, they they are sort of strange, and I actually quite admire this about them. They are strangely sort of midlife movies. He's not uh, he's not afraid to be involved in movies that sort of noodle and poodle around the you, you know the unglamorous edges of yeah, of midlife. And I mean. I think that's what I quite like about it. I like the idea of it, but I think I think the problem is it doesn't pull together. That's not to say that there aren't things in it that are interesting, and there are things in it that you won't see in other movies. Um, it just never quite gelled as a you know as a piece of work. But you you get you know you get the sense with Tom Hanks that he to Tom Hanks that he he wants to make those odd, widgety, slightly slightly left field movies but they're it's when they're trying to be mainstream that it slightly falls down i suppose do you remember we had uh, what, did, what did you think did you did you did you share my reservation yeah i or? i thought he's almost always enormously uh, enjoyable he is i'd never seen a movie set in saudi arabia uh, before i thought the uh, the love story was uh, is the most interesting yeah. part of it and actually that's that's the thing that in a way redeemed it for me is that when that love story starts to come together at first you think this is never going to they never going and actually it does it rather well and then you did get the sense of i am watching a relationship between two characters who i now believe in develop in a way which is actually oddly credible and then there's that weird thing about this is they sort of not you know nods to splash in a really really strange way. So, but the, the, the quirky things about it, I like. I just, I, it just doesn't quite pull together. So you know it's worth seeing. And if you don't want to see X Men, which we'll come to in just a second, there are alternatives. We'll come to yeah. those uh, as well. Do you remember we had an usher in New Zealand who had a problem because uh, he or she was being expected to serve food. Yes, I do remember in the that. middle in the middle of the and aisle. to walk down a, an aisle with people, you know, interrupting their view. I think we suggested that, uh, it, that they refused to do it on the grounds of religion. Yes, because they're, they're it's against their religion, the their church of entertainment. Yeah. yeah. Well, well the, I'm forgetting around the political aspect. Thank of that. you. Very well, good. the anonymous usher's been back. Thank you for your help. Because it could be banned. <laughs> and for coming up with a solution so quickly. Every shift I've been preparing to announce, I don't believe in serving chips to New Zealanders. It's against my religion. Wouldn't say it in that voice, incidentally, no. Simon. But fortunately, I've been on cleaning rather than cooking duty this week. A lot of religions encourage fasting. I'm considering a Bruce Bogtrotter gorge in the name of Wittertainment, a few hundred more kilograms, and I won't be able to fit down the aisles. <laughs> um, Owen is uh, 15, says, I've just uh, recently started listening to your show, and I'm very impressed. I'm a huge movie fan. I've got a DVD collection of nearly 300 movies. Wow. After hearing about that anonymous usher, I told my brother to try and say that bringing food during a movie was against his religion. The man he said it to didn't look very impressed. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Thanks, Owen. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how useful it is, practically speaking. Uh, and Patrick Hurley. Last week, Mark quoted the question, when did The Goonies become not a rubbish film? I thought you'd be interested to know that the same thing has happened to hook. Can I just say that I was quoting it was it was from a movie. I think the movie is When We Were Young, and one of the characters said that. I wasn't saying that I thought it was a rubbish film, I was saying that it was a quote from a film. Most of my colleagues are in their twenties. While I've not been in my twenties since the previous century, but talking about Peter Pan films recently, it turned out that they all, without exception, loved, loved hook. hook. They all had fond memories of watching it on TV as kids. They were genuinely surprised when I told them that it did not have a great reputation amongst those of us old enough to remember its cinema. Or, or indeed a great reputation with the person who made it. Yes. Who said on this very programme, Hook is one of the movies I'd like to go back and watch again because I want to see if there's anything in it at all that I like. Well, 
it sounds as though the audience is finding yeah. it. And I think th- th- that does tell you an interesting thing about watching movies on repeat viewing. I mean, you know, not just going to the cinema and seeing them once and then moving on, but watching them over and over again, because I imagine that most of those people, like, you, they, they, they saw it again, again on video or on DVD. And that does change your perception of films. And... Um, you know, the, that was funny because in the case of the Goonies quote, which I said is from, is from when we were young, what was interesting about it was uh, it, it's when it's, it got a huge laugh in the cinema because everybody of that age went, yeah, when did the Goonies become OK? So it's uh, 12 minutes past three. Most of the correspondence either about Richard Linklater uh, movies okay. or about X-Men Apocalypse. Okay, so uh, X Men Apocalypse. Um, I won't really try to do much of a plot synopsis, partly because I don't fully understand the film, but partly because it's kind of quite complicated. But um, in uh, X Men: Days of Future Past, uh, consciousness sent back to the nineteen seventies to rewrite the you know rewrite the past in order to save the present you know from the future. So this now goes further back at the beginning to ancient Egypt, where we see a sort of proto uber mutant uh, being about to have a transference, which is then interrupted. A proto uber movement. Mutant. mutant who's going to have a transference who's going you're going to be tra- no i can't explain it better than that they'll I tell you what why don't you hear a bit of basil exposition okay ever since the world found out about mutants in 73 there have been cults who see them as some kind of second coming or sign of god i was tracking one of them they call themselves a sheer n sevenure named after an ancient being they believe to be the world's first world's first what the world's first mutant these describe a specific set of powers greater than any man could possess. An all-powerful mutant. Exactly. And wherever this being was, he always had four principal followers, disciples, protectors he would imbue with powers. Like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You got that one from the Bible. Or the Bible got it from him. Oh, I can see what they did there. You got it? Yeah. Okay, fine. So... Basically, uh, the beginning is sort of very, very Stargate-y. And then we move forward to 1983, where uh, Oscar Isaac's uh, Apocalypse, Reborn, uh, Ubi Mutant. Uh, what? Come- yes, I'm just explaining. Believe me, I'm not. It- okay. 1983. Try not to ask any questions. Yeah, 1983, the Stargate transformation thing that was happening at the beginning finishes being happening. He comes out, he's going to sort of wreak uh, terrible havoc, and uh, various X-Men are in various places. So Raven is in East Berlin, and uh, Eric Magneto is in Poland, and uh, the Xavier's School for uh, Gifted Youngsters is still taking new recruits, and along comes, you know, the apocalypse, and everyone on either side will have to take something. Fine. Now, Here's the thing with this. There have been, the, the reviews for this film have been very... There have been some people who've said this is the worst film ever made with the X-Men uh, name on it. And I didn't find that to be the case. I mean, I kind of enjoyed it up to a point. It is like uh, Captain America Civil War, which is infinitely superior. It suffers from an overabundance of colourful characters, none of whom actually managed to have because there's so many of them and even though the film is over long it just feels like everybody's struggling for screen time what i did like was that it kind of visually riffs on you know teen wolf and breakfast club and there's and terminator and michael jackson's thriller and all those kind of age and there's one bit in which um the central 
bad guy, uh, complains about the human race having become decadent and worshipping false gods, and he discovers this from watching television. Somebody says, yeah, welcome to the 80s. There's also a joke in it which has been cited by, time and time again, which is that uh, the kids come out of Return of the Jedi and they go, well, that was rubbish, wasn't it? Well, the third one's always rubbish. Yeah, but the second one was darker. Well, the first one set it all up, but I think we can all agree that the third one is always the worst. And this, the whole thing is, okay, how do you, do you take that as being a joke about the third X-Men movie or do you take it as a joke about being the third prequel because uh, this is a sequel but still technically a prequel and it's kind of in and meta and one of two things happens you either laugh at it and go oh, that's quite funny because it's poking at the edge of things or you go I'm sorry that's really annoying and a lot of people a lot of people have cited that gag as the point at which they lost patience with the film my general feeling about it is is that you get James McAvoy and uh, Michael Fassbender doing that peculiar sort of clipped diction thing that they've been doing, which we're also now used to, which is kind of fine. Uh, there is an utter, utter, utter weightlessness to the increasing level of destruction, which I mean, if you thought that some of the collateral damage of previous films like Men of Steel was a little bit troublesome, I mean, believe me, this is in a whole other level of weightless gargantuanism. And quite often... I found myself thinking, I'm not really sure that I'm following the threads of this because because I don't care enough. That said, I kind of enjoyed it in a in a you know great it's like popcorn. It's it's like eating popcorn. It makes an awful lot of noise, but there is no substance there afterwards. Now, if you are a devotee of the X Men series, and if what you want is something which really develops the thing and does something interesting, this isn't it. This absolutely isn't it. It is, in my opinion, more fun than Batman versus Superman. It is nowhere near Captain America's Civil War. Um, but I did. I absolutely didn't take again. I thought it was kind of, you know, passingly fun popcorn. But people, I think, want more than that from an X-Men film. So now you have much correspondence. <laughs> yes, yes. It's one of those movies that people, they come out of the movie and they just want to tell us immediately. Yeah, sure. Go, and go ahead. Here we go. Uh, Joe Bamforth. Um Overall, I was suitably impressed with X hyphen M colon A. It had all the X elements. Hyphen, okay, fine. Yeah, that's what it is. It had all the elements of the previous two films in the series, which make it stand out from the other Avenger-related Marvel offerings. The actors brought into play the young incarnations of the X Men were all brilliant. There was plenty of humour. Uh, there was a coupling with real-life historical events, although this was dis disappointingly less prominent than the previous two instalments. No reliance on the over-the-top action sequences, and once again the struggle between good and evil, where Magneto was brilliantly portrayed by the FAS. The FAS. The FAS, <laughs> as he's not referred to normally. Where <laughs> the movie anyone. ultimately fell down was the supervillain, a poorly costumed mutant who just happened to have any power the scriptwriters wanted him to have mm. and whose sole aim was some un unimaginative quest for power and destruction was just plain lazy. In conclusion, X-M colon A was an enjoyable file. Uh, enjoyable? An enjoyable file. He might have meant film. File. But, oh, fine, fine. But I, I'm equally, sure he meant film. But it equally, I just maybe it's a computer file. Oh, I see. Okay, fine. However, it just increased the need for more complex baddies with a superhero genre that has become very unimaginative with its plot lines. Uh, Gary Foster just came out of a screening of X-Men, colon, apocalypse. Apocalypse. <laughs> and I have to say I loved it. This was the closest in, closest in tone... The closest? ...in tone and style to the actual comics thus far. They have several new characters and younger versions of previously seen characters, uh, but there's little Basil exposition as none is needed. I know I'm a nerdy comic fanboy, but the long-suffering good lady wife her indoors has only 
red Iron Man extremist, but still followed the film and enjoyed it as much as I did. My wife's only complaint was there was not enough of the ever-so-funny Quicksilver. Thank you, Gary. Although uh, they do reprise that Quicksilver gag. OK, anyway, come Stephen Garnett. Uh, summer is upon us. Another superhero romp. Given that we've had both tremendous highs and lows in the genre this year, I thought X-Men colon Apocalypse fell somewhere in between. Yeah, as, as, as did I. bombastic prologue and finale, the film... The rest of the film seemed very underwhelming, which resulted in too much emphasis on the build-up and not enough payoff. The action was good, but it seems that the producers of these films want to push the amount of carnage to Independence Day proportions as the series progresses. Therefore, the events depicted in this film are so monumentally huge yeah. that the original X-Men films seem like a damp squib in comparison. Uh Julian in Dublin, just back from the opening night of X-Men Apocalypse in Dublin, Savoy. I never thought we'd see the day. I thought we might finally have seen, actually, now the worst X-Men film And ever. this is something that many critics have said, I, you know. I was very worried that this film was going to be weak after the hammy trailers, and unfortunately my fears were realised. The film simply never gets going. The structure and tone all over the place. Dialogue is poorly written, delivered totally perfunctorily uh, from the usually amazing cast. Costume CGI all look laughably cheap when compared to the likes of Cap Civil War. However, the biggest letdown for me was the film's total lack of subtext when compared to earlier X-Men films. There was simply nothing going on below the surface level. That's Sorry, can I just say, that's kind of what I meant when I said people who want you know more from an X-Men film aren't going to get it. Uh, something I feel previous X-Men films have always had the upper hand on when compared with Disney's Marvel films. Hugely disappointed. And then Julian ends... Rather well, I think. Hello to Oscar Isaac. Very good. Very good. Uh, went to the first possible screening. Who's this now? It's T.E. I don't know. You've got the piece of paper. T.E. has been to see it. X-Men Apocalypse starts off well enough with a great opening sequence, grand in scope and spectacle. The opening few scenes very well executed. For me, though, the worth, most worthy addition is Nightcrawler, played, though I had absolutely no idea until the very end, by Slow West's Cody Schmidt-McPhee. Uh, he brings a certain lovable, goofy charm to our favourite teleporter. And, of course, Evan Peters steals the show as Quicksilver. Unfortunately, they're the only positive points. Uh, I have to begin by saying that the character, uh, Jean Grey, was terribly miscast. Ty Sheridan didn't seem quite right as Cyclops. Uh, all in all, I felt this film pining for the likes of Halle Berry, Hugh Jackman and, of course, uh, Fabka Jensen. So... Uh, so, I mean, actually, funnily enough... Mixed, mixed, yeah. I'd say. Well, but, but, but with a general sort of thing, which is, yeah, you know, OK, but it's not, you know, it's not it's not the worst. Well, I think one person did think it was the worst, but it's it's somewhere between, you know, BVS Dodge and CAC... CAC As no one is calling it. As no one is calling it. Uh, 85058 Mayo at bbc.co.uk. More uh, X-Men apocalypse reactions uh, as we get them. What else is out? So let's do Sing Street, which is the new movie by John Carney, who made uh, Once, which I loved, and Begin Again, which I really liked. And I think there are very few people who understand as well as John Carney the, the strange cinematic magic of making music as a kind of romantic device. Uh, so anyway, the story is uh, set in Dublin in uh, the mid-'80s. We have uh, a young hero who is uh, sent uh, from the posh school he's been going to to the, the, to this, uh, to the uh, Christian Brothers School, where he is considered to be a posh Jesuit. He's, you know, posh Jesuit education. He's coming here and suddenly he's got all these sort of ways. And uh, so first thing that happens is he gets picked on. Then he falls in love with a mysterious uh, young girl from across the road, Rafina, who is um, 
completely fixates on. And he goes and introduces himself to her, and she says, I'm going to be a model. He says, oh, do you want to be in our video? And she says, yeah, sure. And he's, then he comes back to his mate and says, well, I've got to form a band now. I've got to form a band and make a video so that the, the girl can be in it. So he then goes back to... Uh, you know, to look around to try and get musicians together. Meanwhile, being tutored by his older brother, brilliant brother Jack Rayner, who is the person who has still living at home and their home life incidentally is sort of falling apart and their parents look like they're on the verge of breaking up. But um, his brother, Brendan, says, look, you know, the musical education, this is how you do it. And here are all the interesting records that you have to listen to and here are the things that you have to know about rock music. They go off, they make a bit of a tape. Brother initially not very impressed. That was bad, bad music, and there is nothing as bad in this world as bad music. That was a novelty act. It's all about the girl, isn't it? Yeah, the girl, yeah. And you're gonna use somebody else's art to get her? Are you kidding? We're just starting. We need to learn how to play. Do the Sex Pistols know how to play? You don't need to know how to play. Who are you, Steely Dan? You need to learn how not to play, Connor. That's the trick, that's rock and roll. And that takes practice. And you're not a covers band, by the way. Really? No. Every school has a covers band. Every pub has a covers band. Every wedding has a covers band. And every covers band has a middle-aged member who'll never know whether they could have made it in the music industry or not because they never had the balls to write a song for someone else. Rock and roll is a risk. You risk being ridiculed. But I don't know how to write a song. Close that door and sit down. Really? It's gonna be a long night. Of school in the morning. This is school. <laughs> of rock, yeah, that was very Jack Black. It really is, it? and and funnily enough, I mean, although the sort of the, the slightly lazy comparison is is the commitment, which you know everybody seems to maybe in fact this has almost very very little in common with the commitment. This is closer in tone to a film like Band Slam or a film like School of Rock in terms of the way in which it approaches its uh, subject matter. I was completely won over by it, and for a number of reasons. Firstly, because it has it occupies this really interesting area between on the one hand what we think of as kitchen sink realism on the other hand what we think of as musical fantasy um the director has a really good ear for the difference between the way something sounds in a room and the way something sounds in your head and the movie keeps shifting its perspective between what's happening in the room and what's happening in your head and it does it so subtly that you really don't notice it's happening there's one sequence in which we see a song being written in a bedroom and incidentally he has got a brilliant eye uh, for the way in which, I mean, having been in bands, seeing to be saying, well, how does this bit work? How does that, I like that line. Yeah, do that. Believe me, that is exactly how teenage songwriting works. And there's a lovely sequence which goes from a song being written in a bedroom to then it being practised in a living room with mum bringing out tea and biscuits to then this kind of full production sound, which appears to come out of nowhere, but is, you know, kind of the way the film sounds, the way the song sounds in the heads uh, of its leads. And so what you get is the foot, The film's got one foot on the ground in terms of actually sounding like, or seeming like it is a story that has a basis in reality. And they're making these videos and their videos are attempting to sort of ape the glossy production value of Duran Duran videos, but they're making them, in, you know, in a Dublin back street on, on a handheld VHS recorder. And there's this lovely song they do at the beginning called The Riddle of the Model, which which is, it is brilliant. It literally sounds like somebody sat down and wrote a you know, perfect 80 song. Instantly, some of the chronology is all over the place. I was speaking to James King about it afterwards and because this is absolutely James's period and James James was complaining that this record wasn't in the chart at that point. That this record wasn't. How was that? Why were they on top of the pops when it was that year? And I understand exactly what he means. I'm kind of old enough to be to not actually mind that some of the chronology has been messed around because what I liked was it had that thing that Carly's movies have, 
which is the sense that he understands the song, the sense that he understands the romance of the song, the sense that he understands the way in which musicals are constantly on the brink of breaking into fantasy sequences. And I loved the characters. I loved the way in which there's a lovely sequence in which you hear uh, Hall and Oates doing Man Eater, which is itself ripped off a million other songs. Then you hear a song which has kind of got that bass riff through in with that whole but yeah, that's how that's how it works. You know, you're a tillage, you hear a song and then you kind of try and write another song that's kind of in the same, you know, in the same well, it's kind of the same, but it could, but you know, but completely different. I remember who was it once said the best way to write a pop song is to find a song that you really like and try and play it on an instrument that you can't play. And then you'll find something completely original by mistake. And meanwhile, you have this kind of, this lovely performance, absolutely lovely performance by Jack Rainer as Brendan, as the older brother who has somehow become becalmed and yet has his own backstory. So he isn't just like a kind of caricature. I mean, his character has every bit as much depth as Jack Black's character does. And there isn't it. There's also a sort of lovely element of Be Kind Rewind, um, or of Son of Rambo in the way in which those videos are made. And and what it means is that when the film tips into its more fairy tale elements, I just went with it. I just went, yeah, fine, because that's where I because it plays kind of like a pop song. I I loved it. I really did. I smiled all the way through it and uh, and I cried twice and I thought, you know, it's a it's it's a movie to charm the heart, not only of the sort of of the old nostalgists who were who were underwhelmed by everybody wants some, but also by those people who grew up watching, you know, Camp Rock and have now outgrown them and want a little bit more grit. There is almost as much correspondence about Sing Street. Can you just please tell me is it generally positive? As there is about X Men Apocalypse. Okay. I'm not going to tell you. You're gonna, have you're to gonna... hang around. Okay. Uh, and and wait for it. So we'll talk more. Sing Street, the other side of the news and sport. What other reviews are coming before four, please? Uh, we're going to do Chicken. We're going to do uh, the call. Oh, Thomas. There's a new Thomas uh, movie that's playing for two days. What? Yeah, we, uh, we might do that in the podcast. We'll see how we feel. Oh, Thomas the Tank Engine? Yeah. Oh, very good. Movie, there, there's another Thomas. Uh, well, I just thought it was some art house thing, like Jeremy. Oh, I see, you know, fine. I it was <laughs> yeah, you like think that. Jeremy is art house? Yeah, something like that. I loved it. Okay. After doing a movie programme for the best part of 20 years, you think Jeremy is I art house? I haven't seen it. Just the way you talk about it. Okay. So, uh, correspondence coming in for Sing Street. Yes. And also we do TV Movie of the Week in just a yes. minute. Nick Atkinson. Mm. I had the opportunity of seeing an early screening of uh, Sing Street at my local world of cinema. I had no real expectations of this, uh, having just seen what was on the press releases, seen what was on the posters, but can honestly say this film was an absolute joy. Oh, good. It made me smile, easily passed the six laugh test, made me oh, sing. easily passed the six laugh made test. Made me sing in my head so as not to violate the code. Yeah. Made me tap my feet and made me cry, but when it was over, I just found myself with a beaming smile all over my face. The good. phrase, feel-good movie, is often used where the movie has little or no feel-good feel good. factor about it. <laughs> but Sing Street can comfortably claim the title. Uh, thank you, Nick. Uh, Fionula, I hope that's right. Sing Street Fionula. left... Hmm? Just, I think it's pronounced Fionula. Just Fionula. Fanula Barrett, in fact, is who it is. Thank you, Fanula. Sing Street left me with a smile on my face and a spring in my step. The film is bursting at the seams with exuberant affection, from the perfectly pitched pastiche songs to the woefully accurate haircuts. <laughs> the young cast members are uniformly terrific. I'm sure Ferdia Walsh-Pilo, correct name? Yes. 
uh, will get a lot of praise for his charming turn in the lead role, but I'd like to call out Mark McKenna's performance as the band's linchpin, Eamon, mm. who is a dead ringer for Elvis Costello. He is, yeah, he if really he, is. He, and what's funny is he kind of grows into being a dead ringer for Elvis Costello, which is which is really sort of smartly done. It's one of those just little touches that you that, that the, the film does really well and underplays really nicely. Keith Howie in Belfast. Um, us folks in Ireland, North and South, had the opportunity of seeing Sing Street a couple of months before everyone else. The director, John Carney, has previously proved to have a knack of making music work on the screen. Yes, he Could absolutely. Could he do it again? The answer for me, having seen it twice now, oh, good. is an overwhelming yes. Manages to combine Gregory's Girl, the commitment and a dash of submarine, yet come out feeling entirely <coughs> fresh. Excuse me. There are hints of darkness in the film that are vital to the work, but never capsize it into melodrama or gritty realism. Yes. Uh, never feel token either. Quite a trick to pull off. The mid-80s setting is perfectly evoked without it being laid on with a trowel. Does the band the kids form in the film get a bit too competent too soon? Yes. Are the songs they write a bit too good for essentially a bunch of teenagers starting out with entirely no musical direction? Absolutely. Does the ending seem a bit implausible? Maybe. Do I care? Not a job. <laughs> Can I just, just, just say something very quickly on that point? <laughs> yeah. The question of whether or not the band becomes slightly too good, slightly too fast. Firstly, as I said before, I do think that what John Carney is doing is playing with that thing between sound in the room, sound in the head, and I think he does that rather brilliantly. Secondly, um, the thing about their songwriting abilities, actually the history of pop music is littered by people... At that around about that age, having an incredible burst of uh, creativity and writing absolutely brilliant stuff, and then and then it's all sort of it's it's all done. I mean, it, it, as somebody who was in you know bands all his teenage life, and I've never never been bands that wrote songs that are as good as the ones in this movie. Let me be absolutely clear about that. But everyone, every, people were writing songs, four or five songs a week, and. You know, some of them were okay, and so I think that the liberty of, of saying that, that these songs are slightly more than okay—they're actually sort of really sort of good. Ca- I mean, I remember being at school and there being bands like Gene Frequency and the Features, and bands like uh, the Vibroge, and you know, all that, all of whom had at least one or two really good catchy pop tunes in them. And so I don't think that the uh, I don't think that the, the, the fancy is taken too far, but I do think that it 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 does have a fable-like tone to it. And when that question about does the end seem implausible, well, I think that the film exists in a slightly you know as I said, one foot in the kitchen sink, but it, the other foot in the stars. That didn't quite work as a metaphor. That's no, quite a painful. I kind of kind thought of I'd go with it, and then I realised that I couldn't quite. But and now I'm now I'm going up at the end of my sentences for no I'm reason. Not even joking. Face. Uh, That's what the film's done to me. It's turned me into a 15-year-old. Yeah, your mum. Your mum's face. (laughs) I think it's funny every time. (laughs) Peter Ruddick, by all rights, this shouldn't have been anything special, but it was. Sure, the plot delivered a few narrative surprises, but that few narrative surprises, but there were plenty of unexpected scenes and treatments along the way. The emotional moments really packed a punch. The the funny scenes laugh out loud. The film showed real musical intelligence and was way more than a jukebox flick. The wise older brother, an unexpected touch and gave the film real gravitas as well as an almost otherworldly philosophical feel. Yes. Finally, the film vocalised a truth that we all must accept. No woman can ever truly love a man man who listens to Phil Collins. Which is slightly racist, but anyway, (laughs) that's the way I'm going to... Gary Kemp has tweeted, haven't seen Sing Street yet, but glad Kermode loved it for obvious reasons and more. I'm looking forward to it a great deal. If that's what the great Mr Kemp thinks, then we need to sit up and take notice. Yeah. Thank you, Gary. Uh, TV movie of the week. Oh, yes. 
Are you ready for this? I'm so ready for this. To- uh, Thomas Edwards, Hunger Games for me, mostly because I just finished reading The Running Man, incredibly similar, also because it's wonderful. And when I watched it for the first time, I had no idea how much of a fan I would become. Mark will pick Videodrome. Lauren Rose, <laughs> Mark, bless you, Mark will recommend The Hunger Games. Uh, Arsenal. Still remember his review of it, and I pick Uncle Buck. It makes me miss John Candy. Yeah, more. I like Uncle Buck. Ian Johnston, for once, Film 4 doesn't have the best schedule. That accolade belongs to the Horror Channel this week with Tales from the Crypt and Videodrome, both fantastic classics. I'd up for Videodrome, arguably David Cronenberg's best work. And Robert Winning, Mark's going to choose I Know Where I'm Going. Wendy Hiller and Pamela Brown are luminous and smart. If Mark's on the fence, I'm going to argue Local Hero could not have been made 40 years later if I know where I'm going had not come first. so And for exactly that reason, in fact, I am going for, I know where I'm going, uh, the Powell and Pressburger from 1945, which, and in a, in a shocking break from tradition in terms oh, of... Our in movie, the no, it's not. It's on Saturday the 21st of May on BBC Two at 1pm. What, in the afternoon? Well, 1pm, I imagine, is yes, the, afternoon, the afternoon, isn't it? Yeah, I'm absolutely. just checking that you're reading that right. 1pm, Saturday, 21st of May, on BBC Two. Um, I mean, the thing is, Powell and Pressburger made uh, A Matter of Life and Death, which is the good lady Professor Herendor's favourite film of all time, and I can understand why. And, uh, you know, they are... It's not just that without without this, you wouldn't have Local Hero. That's absolutely right. Without Powell and Pressburger, you wouldn't have the career of Ken Russell, who really, when he was working in British film and doing things like The Devils and Tommy, was looking back to the template that had been laid by Powell and Pressburger in terms of what defined a British film, a British picture. Um, they are, you know, they are the sump from which all these things draw. And if you can inspire, on the one hand, Bill Forsyth... to be drawn from a sump. Is that a good thing? I suppose. You know, it's funny that when you say it back to me like that, it doesn't sound quite as as <laughs> glittering really. as perhaps when I but when I when I originally. Have you seen? I know where I'm going. I don't believe I Would have. Would you do me a favour? Would you watch it? Probably not. No. No. One o'clock tomorrow, you say? No, on Sunday. Oh, when on did Sunday, Sunday come off? If you, if you, for religious reasons, are you bypassing Saturday? That's right. It's against. You're, you're in some Roman calendar through. or something. <laughs> straight through. Straight through. So one o'clock. You're on doing Sunday. the you're doing the Withnal and I thing, which is that you know you, we start drinking now and then we'll come up smiling yeah. on Tuesday. Okay. Anyway, no, I probably won't watch it. <laughs> okay. Don't take it personally. Can I ask everybody um, to tweet Simon when it's on? Okay, when it's on, tweet him with. A, I mean, obviously, watch the film, but just tweet him. Just before it starts, to remind him that it's on. By the way, you did say Saturday at one pm. That's when. It... Oh, I did. I did say Saturday. You're completely right. So the so the joke's on me. Ha ha. See, I was about to say I can probably manage Sunday, but Saturday Saturday is quite. Is there a footy match on? It's pick of the pops. Oh, well, this is okay. And here is a here is a definition of how good I know where I'm going is. It's good enough to forego pick of the pops. I sh- maybe I'll recall. That's how good it is. Right. What else is out? Well, let's do Chicken, which is um, a feature by uh, Joe Stevenson, uh, based on a play by Freddie Mackin and uh, adapted by Chris New. And the story is uh, a young man, uh, played by Scott Chambers, superbly played by Scott Chambers, uh, with learning difficulties, who is living in a caravan with his uh, sort of volatile and violent brother, Polly played by Morgan Watkins. I have to say very convincingly played by Morgan Watkins. And at the beginning of the film, 
the uh, land upon which they live is taken over by new owners and uh, Richard, the the young man played by Scott Chambers, comes to befriend uh, Yasmin Page's uh, Annabelle. And he is a person who at the beginning of the film we see is finds it easier to relate to animals both dead and alive than he does uh, to people. And during the course of the movie... What happens is that you follow him and in this kind of childlike innocence that he has, but also the kind of the very, very sort of volatile situation that he's in. And it's clear that him and his brother have reached a point in their relationship when things are sort of starting to spiral out of being tolerable. So on the one hand, it's a kind of rites of passage movie, but the things it reminded me of, there was, there's a touch of cares in there in the, uh, the sort of... The, the kind of the beauty of nature against this sort of societal disorder. Somebody who he, the, the the central character dotes on his uh, pet hen uh, Fiona, who seems to be a sort of symbol, both of his flightlessness but also of his nurturing qualities. Um, I also thought in uh, Scott Chambers' performance, uh, you know, hints of uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in What's Eating Gilbert Grape in terms of the brilliance with which everything is very precise. The the precision of physical movement, the precision of apparently scattershot speech. At no point does this performance become in any way pat or patronising or, um, or or you know sort of overdone. What it is, it it's, it manages to make this character with this very complex emotional life understandable and engaging and sympathetic, whilst. He is being isolated and ostracised and alienated, which is a really complicated trick to pull off. Um, for myself, I think that as we move towards the third act of the film, there is there is a there is a misstep in as much as I think the film feels that it needs to walk to, to, to move towards a climax, which I didn't feel it needed. But the reason I didn't feel it needed that was because I had been so touched and affected by it up until that point that had it actually just continued at that observational level up until then, I would happily have, you know, I, I, I would have been uh, quite happy. Uh, beautifully shot um, in a way which captures both the warmth and the harshness of the story and very, very well played by the, you know, by the core ensemble cast. I, th- I found, found it very affecting, very moving. And as I said, I don't compare things to Kez lightly. Uh, an email from Morgan Watkins, Simon and Mark. From Morgan Watkins. Morgan Watkins. Holly Morgan Watkins. As a devoted and always delighted listener, I am full of pride today as Chicken, the film, has made it onto your show. I play Polly in the film and after three years of hard work, we've really managed to get it into cinemas mainly due to the hard work and persistence of our brilliant director, Joe Stevenson. As you can imagine... I'm especially excited about the show this week and I wanted to say thanks for your support. Hope you enjoyed it. I hope people can find it in their local cinemas. I think the film has real heart and I'm very proud to be part of it. Hello to Jason. Uh, Can I say I'm very glad that you didn't read that out before because there's always a sort of... Because then there would have been a sort of terrible sense that maybe I'm saying I like it because, you know, I'm glad glad to... No, I mean, I was... Yeah, I admired it very much. Do you think it's going to be... A struggle to find. Funnily enough, I know a few people who've seen it who've who've um, who felt the same way about it as as I have. I know that the response to it has been very good from those who have. So uh, you know, hopefully, word of mouth will hopefully word of mouth will you know will make people able to find it. It is really worth checking out. Fiona Jenkinson, yes, RGN B nurse ons and third place in a cha 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 contest, age thirteen, <laughs> listening live for the last time today as I drive to Witchwood Park in Crewe for the final residential weekend of my ordination training. 
where I'll be learning how to marry people. Well, how do you marry people? This is how the course goes. Very good. You just, just marry, marry people. people. Over the past three years, and I've, that's it, in essence. Over the last three years, I've been in training, and you've accompanied my Friday afternoon journeys down the M6 from Manchester. And on the 26th of June, I and my fellow ordinands will finally be ordained as deacons in the Church of England. As such, I'd like to book my seat in Clergy Corner. Consider that booked. I'm sure there must be other Wittitanies on the course, but only uh, the only one I've found so far is our lovely tutor, who's called Simon. This weekend is not our final one, but as he leaves his teaching role for new pastors, his enthusiasm, knowledge, passion and general loveliness has helped us all survive and I'm sure will be greatly missed by his college uh, students. So if you could do a Princess Bride, Peter Cook-esque marriage, marriage, <laughs> in honour of our marriage-themed weekend and firm handshakes all round to my course mates. I won't miss the M6, but I will miss your live show. Well, guess what? The podcast is just as much fun. In fact, longer and just more brilliant. And see, the weird thing is, um, I, you know, I have teenage children who now go, a marriage, and I think they're quoting you. Do you think? No, they're... no, no. I mean, I know they're quoting Princess Bride, but when they say a marriage, I always think they're doing you. Well, that's uh, no, no finer comparison. Thank you very much. So, Fiona, thank you very much indeed uh, for the email. Uh, eight minutes to four. What else have we got? Let's here? do um, Heart of a Dog, which is a sort of uh, poetical documentary by Laurie Anderson, refractive musings upon uh, life and death as sort of expressed via her relationship with her beloved dog, Lola Bell, animation Super 8 footage sort of melded together in this very textural and uh, actually I think rather profound in a... in a You know, you know sometimes when somebody makes something which, which, which seems sort of light and whimsical and yet actually it's through that light whimsical that in fact it achieves a level of profundity... That's what I think is happening here. It's, it, is, it is a film about matters of life and death. We were just talking about Prowl and Pressburg. I'm sorry, that's why that phrase is now sticking in my head. Narrated uh, by Laurie Anderson in this way. Which, well, listen, he, he, listen, listen to a little bit of it, because in a way, this, this clip kind of pretty much sums the film up. Now, occasionally, out of the corner of my eye, I'd see some hawks circling in this very lazy way, way up in the sky. And then one morning, suddenly, for no reason, they came swooping down right in front of me, dropping down through the air, their claws wide open right on top of Lola Bell. And then they swooped back up and dropped back down, and I realized that they were in the middle of changing their plan. This little white thing that had looked like a tiny white bunny from 2,000 feet up was turning out to be just a little too big to grab by the neck. And they were making their calculations figuring it out. And then I saw Lola Bell's face, and she had this brand new expression. First was the realization that she was prey, and that these birds had come to kill her. So you get that sort of, you could hear from that, the, that sort of musing tone of something which seems to be sort of, you know, light and inconsequential, actually turning into something which is, and what happens then during the course of it, as I said, we're talking about death, talking about love and the nature of love and death being about the release of love and, you know, Kierkegaard and Wittgenstein and 9-11 and all these things, but all thrown into the mix in a way which doesn't in any way seem pretentious, but it's actually sort of dreamy and engaging. And there are some, I mean, there are some things in it which are like, you know, footage of the dog playing uh, a keyboard, uh, you know, an electronic keyboard, which is almost like just sort of YouTube squealy delight stuff, you know, which is absolutely lovely. And then moving from that into stuff which is altogether more profound. I thought it was it was really rather enchanting and 
has oddly stayed with me since I saw it. Very, very uh, sort of uh, brief running time, I think 76 minutes, which is automatically a four-star running time. And a documentary that does, you know, a sort of poetic documentary that does genuinely manage to be about, what was the phrase from uh, you know, Life, the Universe and Everything, but primarily seen through the eyes of a relationship with a dog. And incidentally, anybody who is a pet owner will understand exactly why that that particular relationship becomes... Have you ever had a dog? Yes. They're just great, aren't they? They are great. If you're And if your circumstances allow it, then that's a very good thing. Yeah, no, exactly. And if your circumstances don't, then it's a very bad thing. Can I just say on the subject of running times? Yes. Before you uh, maybe tell us about Thomas, uh, Jodie Foster is a guest on the show next week, which we're very excited about because... She's never been on the show. She very generally doesn't make herself available uh, for interview. Anyway, Money Monster, which is her new George Clooney, Julia Roberts, Jack O'Connor film. Yes, it's a you know it's a thriller, it's a satire, and guess what? It's ninety minutes long. Wow! It's actually ninety minutes long, and that's with all the credits added. So uh, we'll discuss that with Jodie Foster when she's on uh, the show next week. Anyway, fill in four minutes for us. Okay, well let's very quickly let's do two films. Firstly, let's do so the Thomas and Friends: The Great Race, which I think is only play, I think it's only playing in cinemas for, for for two days, and it's basically sort of like an ex, you know an extended TV program. Um, and it's the new Thomas thing. It was got picked up on because there'd been some sort of news story about the fact that people were saying, oh, you know, it's multiculturalism gone mad. Uh, so the story is uh, the old Thomas uh, thing. It's uh, the Island of Sodor, which obviously kind of you know has a charm for me because of the Isle of Man and I mean even Thomas and the Magic Railroad which which was filmed on the Isle of Man is a sort of diehard favourite for me so the story is there is going to be a great race and there are a whole bunch of uh, incoming uh, new trains so uh, Ashima is the person who particularly catches Thomas's eye who is uh, very sort of uh, you know, colourfully painted. Thomas wants to get involved in the great race, but for many different reasons can't do. And yet actually what the film is... Re- well, do you want to hear a little bit of a clip? Yes, please. Here we go. What is it with all you railway show engines? Charging about like you own the tracks? What makes you so special anyway? Do you think you're better than all the other engines just because... I'm very sorry. I truly never meant to bump into you. I simply didn't realise you were behind me. And what I liked about it was, you know, every now and then you see a film in which the thing that you're impressed by is the fact that it's it's so on message. It's got the whole thing is be yourself. And, you know, diversity is a good thing. And everybody has to discover what it is about themselves that they like. And, you know, sometimes we sort of sneer at this. We, we, we think, well, why? That's actually a very good message to be telling people. I know that some, you know, what it has, because it's a kind of you know, modern movie, doesn't have perhaps the sort of old school charm of some of the Thomas live action, live action, not live action, you know, figure that the, the, the one might remember, but it's, it passed the time perfectly fine. I thought if you were watching it with very young audiences, I mean, as I said, it is essentially a sort of glorified TV show, but if you're watching it with young audiences, I think they'd like it. And I think the message that they're going to take away from it is be yourself. Everyone's different. Everyone has strengths and we should all play to them. And that's a good thing. And I, you know, I found it very hard to find, to, to be in any way sniffy about it. Uh, can I very quickly do Silent Storm? You've got 90 seconds. Okay. Oh, fine. So uh, by Karina McFarlane, story is a, an overall puritanical minister played by Dave. I mean, Lewis is on a small island, it's actually Mull, um, terrorising his outside wife, played by uh, Andrea Riseborough. And then Ross Anderson's uh, young offender is dumped on their doorstep. The minister is even more seethingly angry than before, but then... 
he decides he's going to set sail and go off and because there's a thing which he's he had to do and suddenly he leaves his wife and the, the sort of the juvenile offender I suppose behind where suddenly they discover a brief if fleeting freedom uh, in the absence of his puritanical wrath the film is very very overcranked uh, beautifully shot by Ed Rutherford who had worked uh, with uh, Joanna Hogg so well and I have to say with a very very imposing st- score by uh, Alistair Kaplan I know that it is perhaps too overwrought for its own good and there are moments in which you think everything could just be dialed down a little bit but if you accept that it's key register is really sort of it has this kind of strange thing about Bergman-esque interiors with expansive exteriors that change from brooding storm clouds to almost hallucinogenic sunshine weirdly it kind of started to work its spell with me it's far from perfect but there are things about it particularly the music which are impressive and our movie of the week sing 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 street and hitting the table for extra emphasis yes as a bonus well I thought it was all quite good most of it Mm. Most of that show was was all right. Joanne in Airdrie uh, says, I look forward to a Friday every week, listen to the programme, often comment to my boyfriend about your reviews. What happened in that? In that word boyfriend, you went a little bit, that voice, you went, uh, I've commented to my boyfriend. Boyfriend. (laughs) It's the voice in your head. That's actually how Joanne in Airdrie refers to him. Can we we just say briefly to, to people who are listening, to the show, yes. That weird thing when we seem to be interrupted by voices in our head. What happened was that we both heard um, Eleanor Oldroyd talking, didn't we? And that was what we were sort of reacting. That was because that will still be in the program. So they won't have been able to cut that out. So was, I think they have. Oh, they've cut it out. Yeah. Oh, oh, fine. I'm just in that. They have to <laughs> leave this bit in though. Just, just for the hell of it, leave this bit in. Okay. Anyway, Joanne in. Oh, I can't be bothered to read the text. No, 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 no. Do, 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 no, do, do it. Don't. Yes, that is horrible. I'm hearing Robin's voice in my head. Stop it. No, that's Ellie Oldroyd. That's not a real voice. That isn't. Captain Howdy. Oh, Captain Howdy. He's nice. I bet he is. Had it not been for your show, I'd have dodged Bridge of Spies, missing not only a fabulous film, but one actually now sitting in my top ten. Stardust. Evs or? Yeah, Stardust tops that. Not sure if I'll be judged for that. Stardust, the the 1975 for David Essex movie. No, no. What? Many thanks. No, sorry. what, What if not that? Stardust what? Well, I don't, maybe there's another film. There must be another film called Stardust. Let me look it up. Oh, good. It's, uh, now I'm no, 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 no. But you just finish reading the email I've while I look it up. Finished. Gosh, you're in a tetchy mood suddenly. No, it's all in your... Stardust, head. 2007, with Charlie Cox and Claire Danes. That one, then. OK, that's not the one I meant. The one I meant was Stardust. Well, it's probably... that. It's 1974, probably thank you very much. There's also a 1998 movie called there Remember the 60s, The Rise and Fall of the Rock manager, rock Singer Jim McLean in the mid-60s with his manager. And what was his group called? His group were called The Stray Cats. They were good. No, but it's not them. Not them, it's the other band. Tom Henderson's been on, by the way. How is he? Well, should we find out together? Yes. Uh, Let's go on a voyage of discovery. I'm a volunteer with the International Citizen Service and I'm about to depart from Chennai to my placement in rural Tamil Nadu in southern India. By the time you read this out, if you read it out, uh, my team and I will have arrived in the village of Alangayam and have been uh, into our 10 weeks of development work running workshops on menstrual health hygiene, sanitation and employment skills, though probably not all three at the same time. There won't be many cinema-going opportunities because the cinemas are way away and my Tamil isn't as good as it might be. But <laughs> I, find I, that, I find that mine's not up to snuff either. What about you? But I should have enough internet connection to access the podcast so your wittering can be keeping me sane as possible in the heat. If you could say a huge what's up. 
to all that WhatsApp. Uh, currently, that's working... not a huge one. That's a creepy. Yeah, it is a bit. Anyway, to everyone working on ICS projects around the world, both volunteers and staff, I would be massively grateful, and my mother as well, because she introduced me to your show. In the meantime, I will try to convert my colleagues here in Tamil Nadu uh, to your church. We are on missionary work. That's what we're doing. <laughs> you are delusional. Uh, correct. JT in Chicago is still alive. He was the guy who had a heart yes, attack. Yes, he had a heart attack, uh, but then but then, then woke up a day later. Yes. I thought the punchline of that was going to be and we were still, t- still reviewing the same film. Jeff Rowlands in uh, the Long Dock area of France, on watching the 360-degree video of Mark and Tom Hiddleston's... It makes you sound like brothers, Mark and Tom Hiddleston. Yes, that's right, yeah. Well, I'm guy, but I would be very happy to... Although, actually, I have a very, very fine brother called John, and I will just do with that. I couldn't help noticing that Mark alternately pouts and contracts his lips throughout yeah, the song. I know, Almost I know. as if he's trying to keep a particularly wayward set of dentures from uh, escaping yes, his mouth. I know. Is this an aid to concentration, a nervous tick, or just the distorting effect of the 360-degree camera no it can i can i tell you the truth about this uh-huh. okay so it turns out um is and this a long story by the way i can make it short okay good but just to annoy you i'll probably make it long okay. it turns out that ever since i was a teenager if i when i play a musical instrument i do stupid things with my mouth right so i what i used to do was this you described this Okay, you're sucking your lips together like you're an old lady. So you can't see my, my lips so from growing up, okay? Yeah. Fine. Then uh, there was photographs taken of, of us as bands, and I realised that in every picture of us, they're in that, and I look like an idiot, right? So then I tried to, to do something to stop myself doing that, and I tried chewing the inside of my, uh, my uh, uh, cheek, and then that just goes like that. And then I realised that actually what I was doing while I was doing that was I was chewing my tongue upside down because, you know, I do that. You chew your tongue upside down? Yeah. Well, the tongue's upside down or you are upside down chewing your tongue. Watch, OK? This isn't very radio, but watch. Right, so it's freaky. So right, It's just freaky, isn't so it? So you've just so basically flipped what, your tongue, tongue all the way over and I chew it upside down, OK? Why would you do that? Because it's... It's just a... And, it's, and I've, because I've tried really hard to not do it. So Is that your it, base face? It's it's my I'm playing a musical instrument face and it's a real shame because obviously I'm a total looker, but then as soon as I start playing a musical instrument, I look exactly like what was the description there, Uh, the you know alternately pouting and saying and I contracting his lips and now at the age of you know fifty something or other, it's clear that I'm not going to stop doing it and it's really annoying and but the only thing I can say in my defence is if you've ever seen Stephen Fellows from the Concert Angels singing. What Stephen Fellows does with his eyes when he sings is weirder than what I do with my mouth when I play a musical instrument. Right, OK. So for Jeff and also uh, for JT in Chicago, uh, one more time, listen, JT, just listen to it all the way through without drawing attention to yourself. Carry on. Two, three, four... I wondered so aimless, life filled with sin I wouldn't let my dear saviour in Then Jesus came Stay like with us, JT, stay with us Praise the Lord, I saw the light Harmonies no. That's me interrupting for... I saw the light, I saw the light No more darkness, no more night now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. And the currently like I'm chewing my tongue. Man, I ah. We do have to talk. Uh, it's the law. Um, I gave for my own and 
like a blind man that God gave back his sight. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light, I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. Dum boom. How about that? <laughs> there you go. I'm applauding on behalf of everybody else. Um, so uh, is your... Mark and Thomas. Anyway, so Jay... Um, I saw the light. Yeah, credited well. that way round. <laughs> okay. So uh, I always feel if a song, if you all finish at the same time, it's gone well. JT in Chicago. There you go. That was uh, that was for you. Thanks for still being there. So um, I think we should uh, add some Half Man, Half Biscuit to the playlist. Okay. But should we finish with that and do DVD of the week now? I think that would be the fine. right way around, don't you think? Fine. So now let's fine, do... Fine, fine, fine. Should we do... Should we... You ready? Yep. Okay. And now, <laughs> and now it's time for DVD of the week. I thought they weren't going to hit go on that. It was... It's fine. It'll all be fine. Well, as the weather warms up and the mind of every British man and woman and even more civilized colonial commoners turns to his or her lawn, how to get those perfect stripes? How often should you mow? What edging technique is the most effective? Do you aerate? Well, pasty skin video lovers, why not shout a hearty, who cares, to these questions? Get your stuffy and fetid indoor VHS hidey hole. That's where you should be. Last week, Mark picked Creed. What will it be this week from our extensive long list? And what will you pick? Well, Dominic Skelton says, well, it's a good week. Tough to call it, but at least three titles for me. Four if we had Dirty Grandpa. All right. But I think yeah, I'd have let's to go move on from that, shall with we? With a superb spotlight whilst giving a nod to the big short. I suspect Dr. K might go for Victoria. Joseph Lear, quite a few good entries this week. I think Mark's going to go ultimately for Spotlight with his great ensemble cast. I'd pick the big short. Alistair Hasty, I'll choose Victoria, which is so much more than a technical achievement. Mark will obviously go for the assassin. Well, brother Mark, what are you going to choose? It is very difficult because I love The Assassin, although I do think that probably in the case of The Assassin it ought to be seen on the big screen. So I'm going to go for Spotlight, partly because both you and I saw it and both you and I were really impressed by yes. it. And what I liked about it was that it was a film in which it, it, it does depict a newspaper in a way that seemed convincing. I mean, the comparisons are always made with uh, All the President's Men and certainly I don't think it quite has the sort of the the cinematic panache of all the president's men but you did feel that they were real journalists really pursuing a story and i thought it was a really intelligently told and you know obviously very difficult tale but but it, it, a film that didn't just do a kind of simple heroes and villains thing because in a way everybody is flawed in it and i'll, I'll throw this to you because you've seen it as well your own feeling about spotlight I thought, yes, I thought it was fabulous. I think I'm surprised that it got quite as far as it did in all the Oscar uh, tarantara and wonderfulness. Tarantara. But I think it was, but, but how, how terrific. And Mark Ruffalo was such a great, passionate advocate uh, for the movie. It was about something, it was nicely done, and it made sort of filing and old-fashioned research look quite groovy. Yeah, there was, there, it did have that sense of, he did believe that they were really doing that job. And as I said, there is this crucial moment in which the thing is turned around and said, well, what did you do? 
you know, you're talking about this story has to be broken, but what did you actually do? And so it's not a, it's, it is a, it is a shades of grey story, which which makes it all the more intriguing. So Spotlight. Assassin, I absolutely love. I think it's brilliant. But I do think it kind of needs to be seen. If you've got a big screen, a big television, then uh, watch Assassin. But, you know... OK, so uh, we're, we're done. So we've added one po- uh, another piece of music to our playlist because, uh, quite surprisingly, you started mentioning Half Man, Half Biscuit. Yeah, and then quite surprisingly, you started quoting Half Man, Half Biscuit at great length. Yeah, well, I can actually do the whole song, but I'm, <laughs> I'm really surprised. I feel as though I, I've done enough. So <laughs> Really? Yeah, the original song that I was quoting... I was not a bad impression of it, really, is for what is chatteris. So uh, we'll probably have to chip in and spoil some of it. But it's pretty much a non-stop stream of consciousness. Here we go. Fairly classic, really, it sounds right. Three, four... If you can't see a limit, a timetable of your journey is infinite. My bag's packed and I'm leaving in a minute. What is chatteris without you in it? It's got a fantastic line coming up, right? Drive by shouting one day. I don't care. What's chatteris if you're not there? It's the toughest bit to remember coming up. Okay. After this instrumental break. Song really lodges in my that's head. Really brilliant. Yeah. Like a game reserve that's short on pheasants, a market town that lacks quintessence. I mean, just wonderful. Yeah, really, really good. Really good. Anyway, it's on the playlist, so uh, that's a very, very good thing. And this, is I'm glad. Been... You know, I'm very glad that happened. I'm glad that half man, half biscuit. I know that we couldn't play Dickie Davis eyes because uh, <laughs> that album, that album. No, because it's rude. What's that uh, album called? Um, oh. Uh, it's got Bono in the title. Someone's going to look it up. Look it's it got up. Bono in the title. Yeah, it's got. It's got a, the photograph. You know the Woody Guthrie uh, guitar, the famous sticker on Woody this Guthrie. This guitar kills fascists. This guitar kills fascists. Well, on the front of this album, it says uh, it's got a guitar, and it says this guitar kills wasps. Acting <laughs> <laughs> Bono is what it's called. The album is called Acting Bono. It's also got Joy Division oven gloves on it, which is a terrific, brilliant song. Maybe for next week. Anyway, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Are, will they be on Spotify? Because I, if they are, I think I'm gonna spend the whole have. weekend. Do you think? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. You, but I think you know. You, your band could do a good version of Chatteris. 
I think it, I think it would lend itself to a little Skiffle-esque production. Was it written before 1958? Uh, no. Big props. Okay. Have a good week. And you. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.